Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia. Ivan Yerus. Yeri Wolf. Armenia. Testing, testing. Testing. Armenia. Vartan Arutyanyan. Rafael Papayan. Estonia. Mart Niklas. Georgia. Vasa Zingenti. Latvia. Gunnar Freimanis. Zanis Skudra. Lithuania. Leudas Dambrauskas. Vladas Lapienis. Victoras Skudis. Victoras Petkis. Internal Exile. Antanas Terlekas. Povilas Pesaliunas. Forced Psychiatric Confinement. Algirdas Statkevisias. Russia. Valery Abramkin. Alexander Bogoslavsky. Leonid Borodin. Boris Chernik. Sergei Grigorians. Anatoly Koryagin. Natalia Lazareva. Anatoly Marchenko. Mikhail Milach. Viktor Nikipolov. Mikhail Rivkin. Valery Senderov. Alexei Smirnov. Vadim Yankov. Rostislav Evdokimov. Ivan Kovalyov. Lev Timo Timofiev. Internal Exile. Boris Kanievsky. Zoya Krakmalikova. Igor Ogurtsov. Geb Pavlovsky. Felix Vetov. Arkady Tsurkov. Tatiana Falikanova. Vladimir Osipov. Father Gleb Yakunin. Forced Psychiatric Confinement. Nazimetdin Akhmatov. Vladimir Gershuni. Alexander Skobov. Viktor Rafalsky. Vasily Palinyak. Vladimir Vasilyev. Viktor Zinoviev. Ukraine. Yevgeny Ansupov. Yuri Badzio. Mikola Horbal. Mikhailo Horin. Dmitry Kvetsko. Levko Lukyanenko. Serhi Naboka. Vasily Ovsienko. Zorian Papadayuk. Vitaly Shevchenko. Internal Exile. Danilo Shumuk. Mikola Rudenko. Forced Psychiatric Confinement. Anatoly Lupinos. Vasily Ruban. Pavlo Skochok. Uzbekistan. Forced Psychiatric Confinement. Grigory Alexandrov. USSR Investigation Cases. Alexander Mancharyan. Merab Kostava. Zorab Golgia. Balis Gajuskas, Pavel Aktiorov, Nikolai Baturin, Vyacheslav Dolinin, Tatyana Osipova, 
Andrei Shilkov, Lev Shefir, Valerie Repin, Alexei Reslatsky, Anatoly Ivanov, Vesuvolod Kuvakin, Georgi Feldman, Stefan Khmara, Nikolai Krainik, Vasily Razlutsky, Oles Shevchenko, Yuri Shikanovich. Yugoslavia, Dragan Bogdanovsky, Venceslav Chizek, Adam Demachi, Shemal Latik. Israel, Nabhan Kreishe, Investigation Cases, Sami Al Kilani, Ali Musa Jaradat, Muhammad Abdella Amiri, Khwadora Musa, Mahmoud Ramahi, Kamel Jabail, Tal Abu Afife, Awad Abdel Fatah, Hana Senora. Jordan, Sami Khalil, Investigation Cases, Gamil Al-Nimri, Mazin Al-Azad, Majid Mustafa Al-Mradi. Lebanon, Alec Collett, Terry Anderson, John Paul Kaufman, William Buckley, John McCarthy. Syria, Khalil Reyes, Rita Haddad, Marwin Hamawi, Wadi Ismandar, Mohammed Haitam Koya, Imad Nadaf, Wail Sawa, Tadrus Trad. Turkey, Nevzat Akan, Ilhan Akalin, Ferhat Akde, Aitonk Altindal, Ibrahim Arik, Ifran Asik, Gutzel Aslander, Zeki Atas, Noretin Bedar, Ismael Besikchi, Saban Bilgin, Mehmet Seret, Meten Kulhauglu, Mete Dalgin, Yilmar Jinsbrook, Mustafa Doom, Ali Durman, Mustafa Eker, Yuxel Erdogan, Feta Urkan, Tamir Kayas, Unvive Kaisariloju, Recep Marasli, Ritza Olgan, Mehmet Ozdemir, Sadi Ozansu, Mehmet Ozgen, Kandemir Ozler, Faizula Ozer, Abdurrahman Pala, Alatin Sahin, Ersan Sarakaya, Mrs. Iman Senlikoglu, Orhan Senyas, Nekdet Sevink, Orhan Taji, Osman Tas, Uger Tekin, Safet Rustu Tekin, Erhan Tuskan, Ali Rija Tura, Hasran Fikret Ulu Soydan, Hussein Olger, Fatih Yildiz, Mustafa Yildimturk, Ali Haidar Yildirim, Veli Yilmaz, I Yurkdal. Investigation Cases, Turkey. Husnu Aktas, Servet Zia Korakli, 
Ilkmir Demir, Muhitten Goktas, Haluk Sekin Merich, Hussein Olger, Ali Rabus. Afghanistan, Dr. Hassan Kakar. China, Wai Ji Seng, Leo Cheng, Cher Wei Leng, Chan Erjin, Wan Shijar, Fu Shen Chi, Cher She Leng, Her Chu, Yang Chen, Chen Yao Min, Chang Ji Seng, Wang Lu Cheng, Zhu Chen Bin, Lu Lin, Dai Che. Singapore, Chia Te Po. South Korea, Lee Tai Bok. Investigation case, Kim Hyong Chang. Taiwan, Chang Chong Hong, Chang Hua Min, Huang Hua, Shi Ming Te, Wai Ting Chao, Yao Chiao Wen. Good evening. Can you hear me? I'm Hortense Kalischer, and I'm very pleased to welcome you here this evening. We're all here for more than one reason, to call attention to those writers who are in prison or otherwise injured by the state, and to honor those in the past and to help ourselves. Our world is daily tuned in to an enormous rack of suffering it cannot anoint. We are the world that watches its wars on television, sometimes at dinner time. But wherever a writer is imprisoned for the sin of words, we have a reminder that words are powerful. The saga of writers and thinkers who have been shut away is roughly coincidental with the history of ideas. In our country, where no one is imprisonable for words alone, we tend to forget their true power. When censorship nibbles at our verbal freedom via the courts, we are mildly reminded, as is now happening. 
or when educators warn us that many of the young see words mainly as the noises some pictures make or as the feathery stuff in the manual telling us how to blow each other up. Writers testify otherwise. As long as people use words in order to live, we will be here to record that life. In the United States, where we appear to flourish, the nation at large does not always take us as seriously as writers are regarded abroad, particularly in places where they can be shot for what they say. That's an honor we would be fools to covet. It is true that the martyrs we honor tonight are all elsewhere. I think we have no need to be ashamed of that. If you burn a candle for literature, you can do it anywhere. At this moment, there are men and women sitting in silent cells because they have sung out in poetry and dying of diseases of neglect because they have pamphleteered, tortured because they have upheld the sanctity of the word, confined to mental homes for which they qualify only because their sanity is a judgment against the state. Tonight, we honor the people we cannot watch. Thank you. The first, the first person to speak will be Iber Contreras, who from Uruguay, who was in prison in his country for, I believe, eight years. <clears throat> the text I'm going to read belongs to my novel, Virginia in Flashback, published in 1966. And I sincerely hope that you can follow the text in spite of my English pronunciation. <clears throat> Sometimes, often, I write. The two contributions of the Nick that I have added almost indissolubly to myself are the turntable and the typewriter. Nothing more. I never had a car, nor have I used a lighter. A cigarette is an object that exists and dies. But you have to fertilize it with something live, like fire, like a match. The firm and homogeneous lighter's flame is an insult. And also the fountain pen is true. But I never had a pen as a definitive, definitive property. All of them are condemned to be lost after three, five, or ten months of use, so that I have never arrived at identifying or imprinting my personal mark onto any of them. It's only the turntable and the typewriter. But these two 
have turned into my pseudopods, the prolongations with which myself poses itself or takes possession of the world. When I want to write, I lock myself up any place. My apartment in my pool or any room in any hotel if I'm out of Buenos Aires. And I work for hours and days until I've exhausted the need, the impulse, or the urgency. During these days, I eat little or not at all. I bring with me a provision of alcohol, various packs of cigarettes, a dozen records, and a turntable. Writing is something like emptying myself. After these periods of reclusion, I'm free, light, and exhausted. There are few times when I find a concrete topic that I want to write about. Most of the time I feel nothing but the impulse, a helping need to express something that doesn't consist of anything, that hasn't a clear matter or a clear content. I arrive with this impulse at the typewriter and I begin to type. The rest is almost an act of alienation or a rapture. The words spring, I don't know who are from. The associations and metaphors accumulate, alike stacks of pages blackened by the small tie print of the machine and cigarette butts black and extenuated pile up next to the typewriter. There are few times when I interrupt myself or get up. Every six records, the turntable stops. I approach it and place the records on the other side. When the music starts to play, I go back to the typewriter and continue writing. I need the room like this, full of smoke and jazz. I need to feel myself in balance, sad, or unfulfilled, and the room has to be shut if it is winter. A window open overlooking the street, and in some way, the presence of the city if it's summer. I don't mean that I can incorporate all of this in a conscious way to the act of writing. I don't even hear the music. Six records are enough during these days of isolation. The city, I don't even lean over to look at it. But in one way or another, this is internalized in my unconscious. And it is brought forth the moment I begin to tap the keys of the typewriter. Actually, writing or creating begins with this appropriation of the world by the unconscious. The rest of the operation is like fishing underwater, a slow process of decantation through the sieve of the unconscious.
the transformation of forms, sensations, and imprecise signs in words, phrases, and meanings. Neither does what I write belong to any specific genre. Sometimes I give it the form of dramatic dialogue, sometimes of narrative. Poetry, I don't know how to write. Suddenly I find the acoustic relation of words, the precise articulation among a series of terms that not only completes an Im image or the meaning of something, but that sustains among them an almost physical correspondence. And in this way, I arrive at the transitional conception of a poem. Most of the time, what I write has an, a classification. I act as if I were in a trance. My fingers operate over the typewriter, obeying the procession and at times the scrimmage of terms in my, in my consciousness. The valve between consciousness and unconsciousness is open. The filtration ceases. The perceptions of facts revert themselves and modulate words that the keys write. I would like to know how to express something other than a state of mind, thoughts, repeated agonies. That is to say, I would like to find a reason or a sense for those days of confinement to determine the meaning of this act or impulse, the inadvertent accumulation of time and its concrete sedimentation of burned coal, tobacco butts, dozens of riddle pages, the bitterness of nicotine in the mouth, obfuscation or fatigue in the head, a stabbing pain in the back. I don't know the meaning of all this. I know it's a sterile fatigue. I come out of every reclusion as if after a fruitless birth. And nevertheless, as you used to console me, Virginia, I know we live for that, to bring forth dying born children, beings who will be bitten or devoured by death. happened last night. Some months ago, the hellhounds arrived, six monstrous beasts with a sergeant of the secret police. We couldn't care less. What were to us these creatures amidst the camp, familiar features? Watchtowers, pistols, barbed wire, machine guns, and flamethrowers to boot. I can assure you we didn't care one bit. When I was free, I liked all sorts of dogs, 
They liked me too. But here, these hulking brutes filled me with dread. Especially one, a milk-white bitch with a calf-like head. She terrified me. Wherever I worked in the camp, she would flop down to keep me company, watching me sideways out of bloodshot eyes, staring at me steadily. Stop staring, bloodthirsty beast, I prayed. I stink, and my legs are like sticks. Fat lot of good it'll do you to feast on a scarecrow for kicks. My thighs are those of a skeleton, my buttocks of all meat bereft. Moreover, I told you I'm innocent, a loyal man of the left. Like most of the blokes in this camp, enough. I've had my share. Stop goggling at me, disgusting brute. But she continued to stare. Last night, while dreaming, I heard them bark savagely in front of our hut. The watchman removed the iron bolts. I was awake, though my eyes were shut. The gale raged through the open door. The hut was nearly torn apart, and suddenly that milk-white bitch was sharing my bunk, heart to heart, and perfectly still. Only her tongue was busily licking my cheek while I embraced the brute and whispered to it a silent lullaby. The watchman became curious. Where did the creatures hide? A mocking voice informed him. They've changed to our side. We roared with mirth. Across the aisle, a dark behemoth of a cur was squatting twixt Zoltan and Arpad, my pals. Four hands were stroking its fur. Water is plentiful, but how shall I feed her? These hounds are not easy to keep, I mused, as her head on my aching chest. We both fell asleep. Throughout the long day, the miners' brigade was working in the quarry. When we got back into the camp, the sun was already setting behind the mountain. But there was no petting of dogs. Five of them were lying on the slope in their frozen blood. Only the white one was still trying to stay alive. On three legs she staggered. Slowly, in circles, along the barbed wire, her head hung low, her coat no longer shining, bespattered with blood and mire. From time to time she stopped for a moment, uncertainly not knowing what next. She raised her head and gave out a long howl directed at the police barracks. A foul coward, I, just a hundred steps between us. But watchtowers have eyes. A foam of blood and air broke from the flank of the white bitch where the bullet had hit her. They'd do the same to me and bury me with quicklime in a ditch. So I stood there. What else could be done? I sighed. Woe to thee, poor country, and watch the setting sun. Once more I lie on the rotting straw, my hands beside me lying, like parched leaves fallen from a tree. A bat sits on my knee. The wound is inflamed. I fight for breath. Blood oozes from my flank. I know it is only imagined. I shall imagine it unto my death. I'll be reading a poem by a Hungarian Jew whose name is Miklos Radnati. He was born 
1909, and he died September 1944. The poem I will read is called Forced March. He was, he died on this forced march. He was shot into a ditch, and his wife knew that he was writing during his imprisonment, and apparently when the mass grave was opened, she asked that, that they check his, his jacket, his coat, and indeed they found this poem, which I shall read for you. <clears throat> Forced March. The man who having collapsed rises, takes steps, is insane. He'll move an ankle, a knee, an errant mass of pain, and take the road again, as if wings were to lift him high. In vain the ditch will call him. He simply dare not stay. And should you ask, why not? Perhaps he'll turn and answer. His wife is waiting back home. And a death, one beautiful, wiser. But see, the wretch is a fool. For over the homes that world long since nothing but singed winds have been known to whirl. His house wall lies supine, his plum tree broken clean, and all the nights back home horripilate with fear. Oh, if I could believe that I haven't merely borne what is worthwhile in my heart, that there is to return a home. Tell me it is all still there. The cool veranda, bees of peaceful silence buzzing while the plum jam cools. End of summer quiet, sunbathing, sleepy, bent over gardens, leaves and fruit, naked and redolent. That blonde, my fanny, is waiting before the redwood fence while morning slowly traces its shadow resonance. But all that could return. Just look at tonight's full moon. Don't go past me, my friend. Shout, and I'll rise again. Isaac Bobble, a masterful writer, addressed the Soviet Writers' Conference in 1934 and asked for the right to write badly. He, his writing ceased to be published in the Soviet Union in 1936. He himself disappeared in 1938 and is presumed murdered about that time. This is a story called De Grasso. A Tale of Odessa. I was 14 and of, an, of the undauntable fellowship of dealers in theater tickets. My boss was a tricky customer with a permanently screwed up eye and enormous silky handlebars. Nick Schwartz was his name. I came under his sway in that unhappy year when the Italian opera flopped in Odessa. Taking a lead from the critics on the local paper, our impresario decided not to import Anselmi and Tito Rufo as guest artists, but to make do with a good stock company. For this, he was sorely punished. He went bankrupt, and we with him. We were promised Shalayapin to straighten out our affairs, but Shalayapin wanted 3,000 a performance, and so instead we had the Sicilian tragedian de Grasso with his troupe. They arrived at the hotel in peasant carts, crammed with children, cats, cages in which Italian birds hopped and skipped, 
casting an eye over this gypsy crew, Nick Schwartz opined, children, this stuff won't sell. <laughs> at the theater with another, uh, hardly 50 people turned up at the theater. We tried selling tickets at half price, but there were no takers. That evening, they staged a Sicilian folk drama, a tale as commonplace as the change from night to day and vice versa. The daughter of a rich peasant pledges her troth to a shepherd. She is faithful to him till one day there drives out from a city a young slicker in a velvet waistcoat. Passing the time of day with the new arrival, the maiden giggled in all the wrong places and fell silent when she shouldn't have. As he listened to them, the shepherd twisted his head this way and that like a startled bird. During the whole of the first act, he kept flattening himself against walls, dashing off somewhere, his pants flapping, and on his return, gazing wildly about. This stuff stinks, said Nick Schwartz in the intermission. Only place it might go is some dump like Kreshmanug. The, the intermission was designed to give the maiden time to grow ripe for betrayal. In the second act, we just couldn't recognize her. She behaved insufferably. Her thoughts were clearly elsewhere, and she lost no time in handing the shepherd back his ring. Thereupon, he led her over to a poverty-stricken but brightly painted image of the Holy Virgin and said in his Sicilian patois, Signora, he said in a low voice, turning away, the Holy Virgin desires you to give me a hearing. To Giovanni, the fellow from the city, the Holy Virgin will grant as many women as he can cope with, but I need none save you. The Virgin Mary, our stainless intercessor, will tell you exactly the same thing if you ask her. The maiden stood with her back to the painted wooden image, and as she listened, she kept impatiently tapping her foot. In the third act, Giovanni, the city slicker, met his fate. He was having a shave at the village barber's, his powerful male legs thrust out all over the front of the stage. Beneath the Sicilian sun, the pleats in his waistcoat gleamed. The scene represented a village fair. In a far corner stood the shepherd. Silent he stood there amid the carefree crowd. First he hung his head, then he raised it. And beneath the weight of his attendant, attentive and burning gaze, Giovanni started stirring and fidgeting in his barber chair till, pushing the barber aside, he leaped to his feet. In a voice shaking with passion, he demanded that the policemen should remove from the village square all persons of a gloomy and suspicious aspect. The shepherd, the part was played by de Grasso himself, stood there lost in thought. Then he gave a smile, soared into the air, sailed across the stage, plunged down on Giovanni's shoulders, and having bitten through the latter's throat, began, growling and squinting, to suck blood from the wound. Giovanni collapsed, and the curtain, falling noiselessly and full of menace, hid us from killed and killer. Waiting for no more, we dashed to the box office in Theater Lane, which was to open next day, Nick Schwartz beating the rest by a short neck. Came the dawn, and with it the Odessa News informed the few people who had been at the theater that they had seen the most remarkable actor of the century. On this visit, de Grasso played King Lear, Othello, civil death, Turgenev's The Parasite, confirming with every word and every gesture that there is more justice in outbursts of, outbursts of noble passion than in all the joyless rules that run the world. Tickets for these shows were snapped up at five times the face value. Scouting round for ticket traders, would-be purchasers found them at the inn, yelling their heads off, purple, vomiting a harmless sacrilege. A pink and dusty sultriness was injected into theater lane. Shopkeepers in felt slippers bore green bottles of wine and barrels of olives out onto the pavement. In tubs outside the shop's macaroni seethed in foaming water, and the steam from it melted in the distant skies. 
Old women in men's boots dealt in seashells and souvenirs, pursuing hesitant purchasers with loud cries. Moneyed Jews with beards parted down the middle and combed to either side would drive up to the northern hotel and tap discreetly on the doors of fat women with raven hair and little mustaches, de Grasso's actresses. <coughs> all were happy in Theater Lane, all that is save for one person. I was that person. In those days, catastrophe was approaching me. At any moment, my father might miss the watch I had taken without his permission and pawned to Nick Schwartz. Having had that gold turn up long enough to get used to it, and being a man who replaced tea as his morning drink by Bessarabian wine, Nick Schwartz, even with his money back, could still not bring himself to return the watch to me. Such was his character, and my father's character differed in no wise from his. Hemmed in by these two characters, I sorrowfully watched other people enjoying themselves. Nothing remained for me but to run away to Constantinople. I had made all the arrangements with the second engineer of the SS Duke of Kent, <clears throat> but before embarking on the deep, I decided to say goodbye to de Grasso. For the last time, he was playing the shepherd who is swung aloft by an incomprehensible power. In the audience were all the Italian colony with the bald but shapely consul at their head. <clears throat> Nick Schwartz even brought his missus in a violet shawl with a fringe, a woman with all the makings of a grenadier she was, stretching right out to the steps and with a sleepy little crumpled face at the far end. When the curtain fell, this face was drenched in tears. Now you see what love means, she said to Nick as they were leaving the theater. <clears throat> Stomping ponderously, Madame Schwartz moved along Langeron Street. Tears rolled from her fish-like eyes, and the shawl with the fringe shuddered on her obese shoulders. Dragging her mannish soles, rocking her head, she reckoned up in a voice that made the street re-echo the women who got on well with their husbands. Ducky, they're called by their husbands. Sweetie pie, they're called. The cowed Nick walked along by his wife, quietly blowing on silky mustaches. From force of habit, I followed on behind, sobbing. During a momentary pause, Madame Schwartz heard my sobs and turned around. See here, she said to her husband, her fish eyes a goggle. May I not die a beautiful death if you don't give this boy back his watch. <coughs> Nick froze, mouth agape, then came to and, giving me a vicious pinch, thrust the watch at me sideways. What can I expect of him, the coarse and tear-muffled voice of Madame Schwartz wailed disconsolately as it moved off into the distance. What can I expect but beastliness today and beastliness tomorrow? I ask you, how long is a woman supposed to put up with it? They reached the corner and turned into Pushkin Street. I stood there, clutching the watch, alone. And suddenly, with a distinctness such as I had never before experienced, I saw the columns of the, the municipal building soaring up into the heights, the gas-lit foliage of the boulevard, Pushkin's bronze head touched by the dim gleam of the moon, saw for the first time the things surrounding me as they really were, frozen in silence and ineffably beautiful. This is a poem by Reza Barahaini called Another Dream. Four bicycles of fire dance around you in my dream. Have we set foot in a galaxy of kisses? Does the surf wash up to our sides? 
as the damp hair of Paris stuck to our lips. Don't wake him, for God's sake, don't wake him. This dream is not mine. It cannot be. It is too beautiful to be mine. Between us, there is only the distance of a single flower. You have a fawn's ear between your fingers. And in the next picture, you walk down the staircase of a star. The other stars break around you in bubbles? No, this dream is not mine. It is too beautiful to be mine. Don't wake him. For God's sake, don't wake him. Waking. He crouches in the corner of his cell for hours. He speaks without prompting. When I leave the prison, if I leave it, I will fear being away from my wife. I will fear being away from my friends. I will fear being away from my children. For I fear that outside is another prison. From the Maze by Brighton Breitenbach, an Afrikaans poet. Afrikaner poet. It is 25 November 1975 when I am sentenced. I shall not be seeing the stars again for many years. In the beginning, I don't realize this. I don't miss them. And then suddenly it becomes very important, like chafing sores in the mind, something you've taken for granted for so long you now miss the way you'd miss a burial site if you died in space. It is not natural never to see stars, or the moon for that matter. It is as cruel as depriving people of sound. I see the moon again for the first time on 19 April 1976, when at about 23 minutes to four in the afternoon, I am the, in the largest of the three exercise yards, which has towering walls, making it rather like a well. I looked up, and to my astonishment, saw in a patch of sky a shriveled white shape. Could it be a pearl in my eye? Was it the afterbirth of a spaceship? No, it could only be the moon. And they told me that she'd been hanged, that she was dead. The sun and its absence become the pivot of your daily existence. You wait. You build your day around the half an hour when you'll be allowed out in the courtyard to say good morning to the sun. You follow its course through the universe behind your eyelids. You become its disciple. The sun knows not of the justice of man. You know exactly where it touches at what time, winter, autumn, or summer. And if you are lucky, as I was for some time, to be kept in a cell just off the main corridor with windows giving out on this catwalk which was not closed to the outside, you have a glimmer, a suspicion, a hair crack of sunshine coming in at certain seasons, but never reaching far enough down for you to feel it. I used to climb on my bed, stand on my toes on the bedstead, and then sometimes for something like two minutes a day, a yellow wand 
would brush the top of my hair. Of course, you develop an intense awareness, like a hitherto unexplored sense in yourself, for knowing exactly when the sun rises and when it sets, without ever seeing it. On summer days, when you were cleaning your corridor, you could see through the grill clouds, through the grill clouds passing along the blue highway above the yard wall facing you. Boats on their way to a dream. Bit actors always dressed in white, being taken to an empty space where Fellini would be filming a Saturnalia, a wedding feast. There was wind, which you never felt on your face, but which you got to know through its aftermath. Aftermath, the red Transvaal dust you had to sweep up. There were the most impressive summer thunderstorms, tearing and rolling for miles through the ether, slashing and slaying before big rain came to lash the roof with a million whips, It was like living underneath a gigantic billiard table. Behind the walls, with no apertures to the outside, behind the screen of your closed eyes, where you hid from the bore, you still saw the stabs and the snakes of lightning. There was also the defiance of those singing their death. When first I came out of prison, I was thrown into emptiness, and I found all space around me cluttered. For so long had I been conditioned to the simplification of four walls, the square of the barred window, the double square door, the square bed, emptiness, nowhere to hide the smallest illegal object, nowhere to hide the crust of bread to which you were not entitled, nowhere to efface yourself or tuck away the soul or to protect your three dreams from prying eyes and acquisitive fingers, nowhere to hide your anguish. All these had been erased by being made apparent. It just became language. So that when I found myself ejected into what you would consider to be the normal world, I found it terribly confusing. Why are there so many people moving through the theater decor of streets? How come the air is so bloated with useless words? Why on earth do people have so many objects in their houses? Why do they have to hang things on the wall or have to have more than one set of clothes? Why do they collect possessions? You should know by now that one can never possess anything, and when the law strikes, you will lose everything anyway. And I remember, because now it is passing, that whenever I entered a new space, I lifted my feet very high and I pulled my head down between my shoulders from fear of the unexpected step or beam. What else must I describe? Do you really want to know what it's like to be free? Freedom is not knowing where to stop. It is a gargantuan appetite. It is a need to burn clean with whatever is spicy and hot, the taste of dullness which has encrusted your memory and your appetite. It is the unquenchable thirst. It's the need to absorb, to take, to grasp, to experience, to renew, and to drink because it is simultaneously the necessity to deaden the nerve ends. I have not the slightest measure of what ought and ought not to be done, and when and how. I should eat whatever you put before me. I read on the wall, Mangez-vous les uns les autres, and I discover all kinds of lusts, a yearning for seafood. I must have mustards. I must have pickles. I must exercise the regrets and the shame and the guilt. Ah, Mr. Investigator, don't you think I'm guilty? Yes, I have the guilt of the survivor. All my friends are dead because they are still alive, locked in the cleanliness of asexual and dehumanized space, 
and I, I'm outside, alive in the deadness of my surroundings. I'm the Lazarus. I came back from that paradoxical paradise and have no life left. I have lived it. What remains is gratuitous, free, no attachments, no importance. I have no affairs. I have no interests. These two have been scorched clean. Now I must get rid of the unreality. I must vomit. I must eject this darkness. I must plead with you, Mr. Investigator, to not stop asking me questions. Do not desist. Do not turn away from me. The people. What about the people? Yes, I know. I'm the man who went down to the corner to buy cigarettes and who came back eight years later. Of course my return was a shock to my friends. I'm the happening in the slur of their daily existence, which gives it a different coloring. I'm the horse in the soup. And then very quickly, I'm the invisible ghost, because their lives must continue as their lives had continued for seven years and had changed and had grown finally around the absence or the asshole, which I must have been to them, the way a tree grows around a knot in its fibers. Which is why I turn back to you, Mr. Investigator, Mr. I, and I talk, because you must give me sounds. You must allow me to regurgitate all the words like the arabesques of a blind man. I'm the man on the corner with dark glasses waiting for your coin. I'm the lift attendant in security headquarters. Don't ask me any questions. You don't have to. You will not be able to stop the answers in any event. The black vomit must be spewed out. See? Here. I hold it in my hands. I have the black gloves. Feel it. Feel the gloves. Look at the glasses. I know. I know what it is like to be black in a white country. Freedom is the minotaur outside the walls. I'm going to read first uh, a paragraph from an essay by Osip Mandelstam. The essay is called About an Interlocutor, and this is a paragraph in the middle where Mandelstam speaks of about what he does. Yes, when I speak to somebody... I do not know with whom I speak, and I do not wish, I do not wish to know him. There is no lyric without dialogue, yet the only thing that pushes us into the arms of the interlocutor is the desire to be surprised by our own words, to be captivated by their novelty and unexpectedness. The logic is ineluctable. If I know to whom I speak, I know ahead of time how he will regard what I say, whatever I might say, and consequently I shall manage not to be astonished by his astonishment, to be overjoyed by his joy, or to love through his love. The distance of separation wipes out the features of a beloved person. Only then does the desire arise in me to say to him that important thing I could not have said to him when I had his image before me in the fullness of its reality. 
I permit myself to formulate this observation thus. The sense of communication is inversely proportional to our real knowledge of the interlocutor and directly proportional to the felt need to interest him in ourselves. <clears throat> it isn't about acoustics one should concern oneself. That will come of itself. More likely, about distance. It's boring to be whispering to a neighbor. It's infinitely tedious to pressure drill one's own soul. But to exchange signals with Mars, without fantasizing, of course, that is a task worthy of a lyric poet. And I will now read uh, a translation of one of Mandelstam's poems, translated by Bernard Mears. The poem is called The Finder of a Horseshoe, a Pindaric Fragment. It's unlike most of Mandelstam's poems, it is in free verse. We look at woods and we say, here is a forest for ships and for masts. The pink pines stand free to their tops of bushy accretions. They should creak in a storm, as do lone-standing stone pines in the infuriating forestless air. Beneath the salty heel of the wind, the plumb line stands firm, driven sheer to the dancing deck, and a seafarer, in the unfettered thirst of emptiness, dragging through the soaking hollows the fragile instrument of the surveyor, compares the rough surface of the seas against the attraction of the landward mass. And inhaling the odor of resinous tears sweating out through the joints of the ship, admiring the decking riveted and squared into bulkheads, not by the peaceful carpenter of Bethlehem, but by another, the father of voyagers and seafarer's friend, we say, and they too once stood on dry land as uncomfortable as an ass's back at their tops, oblivious of their roots on a famous mountain ridge, and they sowed beneath fresh torrential rains, unsuccessfully suggesting to heaven that their noble load be exchanged for a pinch of salt. From what should we begin? Everything splits and sways. The air's a tremor from comparisons. No single word is better than any other. The earth is buzzing with metaphor. And light two-wheelers garishly harnessed to, harnessed to flocks of straining birds collapse in fragments, rivaling the snorting favorites of the tracks. Thrice blessed is he who enshrines a name in song, a song embellished by a name, lives longer than all others. It stands out among the rest by the frontlet on its brow that heals it from amnesia, from the stupefying smell, whether the closeness of a man or the odor exuded by a strong beast's coat, or simply the scent of savory rubbed between the palms." Air can get as dark as water, and all things in it swim like fish, thrusting the element past with their fins, for it is solid 
elastic, slightly warmed, a crystal where wheels turn and horses shy, the damp black soil of Naira, each night turned up anew by pitchforks, tridents, mattocks, plows, the airs wor worked over as thickly as the ground. One can't get out from it, nor easily get in. A rustle rushes through the trees like a green racket, but the children play at five stones with the vertebras of dead beasts. And the fragile chronography of our times is drawing to a close. Thank you for that which has been. I myself went wrong, was mistaken, made an error in my calculations. The era echoed like a golden orb, hollow cast, not supported by anyone, and responded yes and no to each touch as a child can answer equally I'll give you an apple, or I shall not give it to you. While his face is an accurate cast of his voice as he utters the words, the sound continues to ring through the source of the sound. After it is gone, a horse lies in the dust and snorts in a sweat, but the steep curve of its neck still retains remembrance of the race in its outstretched hooves where there were not just four but as many hooves as stones in the road, redoubled in four dimensions by the number of thuds on the ground of the racehorse seething with heat. Thus, the finder of the horseshoe blows the dust off it and polishes it with wool till it shines. Then he hangs it on his door for it to rest and to free it from the need to strike sparks from flint. Human lips, with nothing more to say, retained the shape of their last uttered word, and a sense of heaviness stays in the hand through, the, through a jug being carried home, half spilled over. That which I'm saying now is not me speaking, but has been dug from the earth like grains of fossilized wheat. Some stamp coins with lions, others stamp them with heads. All kinds of copper, bronze, and gold wafers, equally honored, lie in the earth. The earth and the age have tried to chew them and left on each the clench of its teeth. Time clips me like a coin, and there isn't enough of me left for myself. I'm going to read uh, this poem to you both in English and then in Russian. Uh, he was born to the, uh, to the innocence in this audience. He was born in, in 1891 and he died presumably in 1937 in the concentration camp. The poem has been written in 1928. The title of the poem is Tristia. Tristia. I've mastered the great craft of separation amidst the bare and braided pleas of night. Those lingerings by oaks and chill duration the watchful town's last eyelids shutting tight.
And I revere that midnight rooster's descant when shouldering the wayfarer's sack of wrong, eyes stained with tears were appearing at the distance, and women's wailings were the muse's song. Who is to tell when hearing separation what kind of parting this may resonate? Foreshadowed by rooster's exclamation, a scandal's twist, the temple's colonnade. Why at the dawn of some new life, new era, when oxen chew the ration in the stall, that wakeful rooster, a new life's town crier, flaps its torn wings atop the city wall. And I adore the worsted yarn's behavior, the shuttle bustles and the spindle hums. Look how young Delia, barefooted, braver than dawn of swans, glides straight into your arms. Oh, our life's lamentable, coarse fabric. How poor the language of our joy indeed. What happened once becomes a worn-out matrix, yet recognition is intensely sweet. So be it thus, a small, translucent figure spreads like a squirrel pelt across a clean clay plate. A girl bends over it, her eager gaze scrutinizes what the wax may mean. To ponder Erebus, that's not for our acumen. To women, wax is as to men steals shine. Our lot is drawn only in wars. To women, it's given to meet death while they divine. Tristia. Я изучил науку расставания В простоволосых жалобах ночных Жуют волы и длится ожидания Последний час вигилий городских И что обряд той петушиной ночи Когда, подняв дорожный скорби груз Глядели вдаль заплаканные очи И женский плач мешался с пением муз кто может знать при слове расставания, какая нам разлука предстоит, что нам сулит петушье восклицание, когда огонь в акрополе горит, и на заре какой-то новой жизни, когда в сенях лениво волн жует, зачем петух глашатой новой жизни на городской стене крылами бьет? И я люблю обыкновение пряжи. Снует челнок, веретено жужжит. Смотри навстречу, точно пух лебяжий. Уже нога Яделия летит. О нашей жизни скудная основа. Куда, как беден радость язык. Все было встарь, все повторится снова. И сладок нам лишь узнавание миг. Да будет так. Прозрачная фигурка На чистом блюде глиняном лежит, Как беличья распластанная шкурка. Склонясь над воском, девушка глядит, Не нам гадать о греческом ребе. Для женщин воск, что для мужчин медь, Нам только в битвах выпадает жребий, А им дано, гадая, умереть.
I'm going to read from Nguji Watyongo's Petals of Blood. But before I do, I want to call to your attention the plight of his countryman, Mianawa Kenyatti, who is still serving a sentence, and in spite of an overwhelming uh, plea from the international community of writers, is still um, held hostage um, in Kenya. Amidst this chaos and whirlwind of thought, the figure of the lawyer would suddenly stand out clean, splendid in his dedication and understanding. He one day sat down and wrote to him. Send me books, he appealed, for somewhere in the high seats of learning in the city, somebody was bound to know. For two weeks he waited, not so much for the books as a word, which would restore his faith and his belief. But the lawyer didn't say anything. He just sent him books and a list of other titles written by professors of learning at the university. See what you can make out of these, the lawyer had scribbled. Karenga did not know what it was that he really wanted to get, but he vaguely hoped for a vision of the future rooted in a critical awareness of the past. So he first tried the history books. It seemed to him that history should provide the key to the present, that a study of history should help us understand certain questions. Where are we now? How did we come to be where we are? How did it come about that 75% of those that produce food and wealth were poor? That a small group, part of the non-producing part of the population, were wealthy? History, after all, should be about those whose action, whose labor, had changed nature over the years. But how come? Parasites, lice, bedbugs, jiggers, who did no useful work, lived in comfort, and those that worked for 24 hours went hungry and without clothes. How could there be unemployment in a country that needed every ounce of labor? How did people produce and organize their wealth before colonialism? What lessons could be learned from that? But instead of answering these, instead of giving him the key he so badly needed, the professors took him to pre-colonial times and made him wander purposelessly from Egypt or Ethiopia or Sudan, only to be checked in his pastoral wanderings by the arrival of Europeans. There they would make him come to a sudden full stop. To the learned minds of the historians, the history of Kenya before colonialism was one of the wanderlust and pointless warfare between peoples. The learned ones never wanted to confront the meaning of colonialism and imperialism. When they touched on it, it was only to describe acts of violent resistance as grisly murders. Some even demanded the rehabilitation of those who had sold out to the enemy during those years of struggle. One even approvingly quoted Governor Mitchell on the primitivity of Kenyan peoples and went ahead to show the historical origins of this 
primitivity, or what he called under-civilization. Nature had been too kind to the African, he had concluded. Carrega asked himself, so? The African then deserved the brutality of the colonizer to boot him into our civilization. There was no pride in this history. The professors delighted in abusing and denigrating the efforts of the people and their struggles in the past. He turned away in despair. Maybe it was his ignorance and his lack of university training. What of the resistance of African peoples? What of all the heroes traversing the whole world of black peoples? Was that only in his imagination? So he tried political science. But here he plunged into an even greater maze. Here professors delighted in balancing weighty, rounded phrases on a thin, decaying line of thought, or else dwelt on statistics and mathematics of power equation. They talked about politics of poverty versus inequality of politics, traditional modernization versus modernizing traditions, or else merely gave a catalog of how local governments and central bureaucracies worked or what this or that politician said versus what another one said. And to support all this, they quoted from several books and articles, all carefully footnoted. Carrega looked in vain for anything about colonialism and imperialism. Occasionally, there were abstract phrases about inequality of opportunities or the ethnic balancing act of modern governments. Imaginative literature was not much different. The authors described the conditions correctly. They seemed able to reflect accurately the contemporary situation of fear, oppressions, and deprivation. But thereafter, they led him down the paths of pessimism, obscurity, and mysticism. Was there no way out except the cynicism? Were people helpless, victims? He put the books in packets and posted them back to the lawyer with a note. Why had he sent him such books which did not speak to him about the history and the political struggles of the people of Kenya? And then he got a rather long letter from the lawyer. You would ask me for books written by black professors. I wanted you to judge for yourself. Educators, men of letters, intellectuals, they're only voices, not neutral, disembodied voices, but belonging to bodies of persons, of groups, of interests, You who will seek the truth about words emitted by a voice, look first for the body behind the voice. The voice merely rationalizes the needs, whims, caprices of its owner, the master. Better, therefore, to know the master in whose service the intellect is, and you will be able to properly evaluate the import and imagery of his utterances. You serve the people who struggle, or you serve those who rob. In a situation of the robber and the robbed, in a situation in which the old man of the sea is sitting on Sinbad, there can be no neutral history and politics. If you would learn, look about you. Choose your side. What did he mean, look about you? Choose your side. He didn't want any more masters. He just wanted to know the truth. What truth? He looked out of the window and saw the green crops, the new growth. Crops will flower, and later we shall harvest, he muttered to himself. 
but his questions remained unanswered. Thank you. The uh, first selection I'm going to read is from the closing moments of Rassan Kenafani's novel, Men in the Sun, which was published in 1963. And um, I think I should say just a word about the story, which this passage concludes. Um, there are three Palestinians who are in Basra in Iraq who want to be smuggled into Kuwait, and they find another Palestinian who's rather more comfortable, a man called Abu Khezaran, who... Uh, will drive the truck, it's a tanker truck, across the border. And as he puts them in the truck, he has to stop at the customs. And the customs is in the middle of the summer and, and at noon, and he's detained, and the three men die. He turned his lorry off the asphalt road and drove along a sandy track which led into the desert. He had made up his mind at noon to bury them one by one in three graves. Now he felt consumed with exhaustion, as though a drug had been injected into his arms. He had no strength to work, and he wouldn't be capable of wielding a spade for long hours to dig three graves. Before he went to take his lorry out of the garage, he told himself that he wouldn't bury them. He would throw the three corpses into the desert and return home. But now he wasn't pleased with the idea. He didn't like to think that his companions' bodies should be lost in the desert at the mercy of birds and beasts of prey and that there would be nothing left of them after a few days except white bones lying on the sand. The lorry moved over the sandy truck with a muted noise while he went on thinking. He wasn't thinking in the strict sense of the term, but a series of disconnected scenes was passing ceaselessly through his brains, incoherent and inexplicable. He could sense exhaustion creeping through his limbs like straight columns of ants. A breeze sprang up and carried to his nostrils a smell of putrefaction, he said to himself, the municipality piles up the rubbish here. Then he reflected, if I dumped the bodies here, they would be discovered in the morning and buried under official auspices. He turned his steering wheel and followed the tracks of many wheels which had dug their path through the sand before him, and then he switched off the headlamps, advancing slowly by the light of the side lamps alone. When the black heaps of rubbish rose up in front of him, he switched off the side lamps. The air around him filled with the putrid stench but he soon got used to it. Then he stopped his lorry and climbed down. Abul Khazaran stood beside his lorry for a few moments to make sure that no one was watching him. Then he climbed up onto the back of the tank. It was cold and damp. He turned the curved metal handle slowly and pulled the iron disc up so that it burst open with a sharp explosion. Supporting himself on his arms, he slid lightly down inside. The first corpse was cold and firm, and he tossed it over his shoulder. He pushed the head out of the opening first, and then, holding the corpse by its legs, he lifted it and threw it upwards, hearing the heavy sound it made as it slid over the edge of the tank and the muffled bump as it struck the sand. He had great difficulty in prying the hands of the other corpse away from the iron support, but then he pulled it by its legs to the opening and threw it out over his shoulder, straight and stiff. He heard it strike the earth. The third corpse was easier than either of its companions. He jumped down slowly closed the opening and climbed down the ladder to the ground. There was thick darkness everywhere, and he was relieved that he would be saved by it from seeing the faces. Holding them by their feet, he dragged the corpses one by one and threw them onto the end of the road, 
where the municipality's dust carts usually stopped to dump their rubbish so that the first driver arriving in the morning would easily have an opportunity to see them. He climbed into his seat, turned on the engine, and slowly went into reverse, trying his utmost to mingle the tracks of his lorry's wheels with those of others. He had decided to drive back to the main road into reverse in order to confuse the traces completely. But a thought occurred to him when he had covered some distance, and he switched off the engine again, walked back to where he had left the bodies, and took the money from their pockets. He also removed Marouane's watch. Then he retraced his steps to the lorry, walking on the edge of his soles. As he returned to it and lifted one leg up, a sudden thought flashed into his mind. He stood rigid in his place, trying to do or say something. He thought of shouting, but immediately realized what a stupid idea that was. He tried to finish climbing into the lorry, but didn't feel strong enough. He thought that his head would explode. All the exhaustion which he felt suddenly rose to his head and began to hum in it, and so he put his head in his hands and began to pull his hair to expel the thought. But it was still there, huge and resounding, unshakable and inescapable. He turned to look back to where he had left the corpses, but he could see nothing, and that glance simply set the thought ablaze so that it began to burn in his mind. All at once he could no longer keep it within his head, and he dropped his hands to his sides and stared into the darkness with his eyes wide open. The thought slipped from his mind and ran onto his tongue. Why didn't they knock on the sides of the tank? He turned right round once, but he was afraid he would fall. So he climbed into his seat and leant his head on the wheel. Why didn't you knock on the sides of the tank? Why didn't you say anything? Why? The desert began to send back the echo. Why didn't you knock on the sides of the tank? Why didn't you bang the sides of the tank? Why, why, why? The next is a poem by Tofiq Zayat, who is the, uh, it's a decade later, in the early 70s, and it's a, he was the mayor of Nazareth, and it's a poem entitled, We Shall Remain. It is a thousand times easier for you to pass an elephant through the needle's eye, to catch fried fish in the Milky Way, to plow the sea, to teach the alligator speech, a thousand times easier than smothering with your oppression the spark of an idea or forcing us to deviate a single step from our chosen march. Like 20 impossibles, we shall remain in Lydda, Ramla, and Galilee. Here upon your chests we shall remain, like the glass and the cactus in your throats, a fiery whirlwind in your eyes. Here we shall remain a wall on your chests. We wash dishes in the hotels and serve drinks to the masters. We mop the floors in the dark kitchens to extract a piece of bread from your blue teeth for the little ones. Here we shall remain a wall on your chests. We starve, go naked, sing songs, and fill the streets with demonstrations and the jails with pride. We breed rebellions one after another. Like 20 impossibles, we remain in Lydda, Ramla, and Galilee. Here we shall remain. You may drink the sea. We shall guard the shade of the olive tree and the fig, planting ideas like the yeast in the dough. The coldness of ice is in our nerves and a burning hell in our hearts. We squeeze the rock to quench our thirst, and if we starve, we eat the dirt and never depart or grudge our blood. Here we have a past, a present, and a future. Our roots are entrenched deep in the earth. Like 20 impossibles, we shall remain let the oppressor review his account before the turn of the wheel. 
For every action, there is a reaction. Read what is written in the book. Like 20 impossibles, we shall remain in Lydda, in Ramla, in Galilee. The, the last is a very short poem by Mahmoud Darwish, which was written 10 years later, at the, uh, near the end of 1982, after the um, Palestinian exodus from Beirut, entitled The Earth is Closing on Us. The earth is closing on us, pushing us through the last passage, and we tear off our limbs to pass through. The earth is squeezing us. I wish we were its wheat so we could die and live again. I wish the earth was our mother so she'd be kind to us. I wish we were pictures on the rocks for our dreams to carry as mirrors. We saw the faces of those to be killed by the last of us in the last defense of the soul. We cried over their children's feast. We saw the faces of those who will throw our children out of the windows of this last space. Our star will hang up mirrors. Where should we go after the last frontiers? Where should the birds fly after the last sky? Where should the plants sleep after the last breath of air? We will write our names with scarlet steam. We will cut off the hand of the song to be finished by our flesh. We will die here, here in the last passage. Here and here our blood will plant its olive tree. The Starving Man's Rack by Cesar Vallejo. From between my own teeth, I come out smoking, shouting, pushing, pulling down my pants. My stomach empties, my jejunum empties. Juan pulls me out from between my own teeth, caught with a sliver by the cuff of my shirt. A stone to sit down on. Isn't there even that for me? Even that stone that trips the woman who's given birth, mother of the lamb, the cause, the root. Not even that for me now? Well, at least that other that passed crouching through my soul. Or at least the calcaretic or the sick. Oh, modest ocean. Or, or that no good. Or, or that no good now even to throw at man. That one. Give me that one. Now. Now. For me. Well, at least the one they found in the way and only in an insult. That one. Give me that one. Now. Give me. For me. At least the twisted and crowned and in which echoes only once the walk of erect conscience. Or... Or at least that other, that flung an upright curve, will drop by itself, professing true center. That one. Give me that one now. Now for me. A piece of bread, that too, denied to me. Now I, longer, now I no longer have to be what I always have to be. But give me a stone to sit down on. But give me, please, a piece of bread to sit down on. But give me, in Spanish, something. In the end, to drink, to eat, to live, to let me sleep, and then I'll go away. I find a strange form. My shirt's all ripped and filthy, and now I have nothing. This is horror. And here's a poem by Miguel Hernandez, Hernandez called The Plowboy. Flesh of yoke, he is born more humiliated than handsome with his neck hunted down by a yoke for the neck, 
is born like a tool to be destined to blows out of an unhappy land by an unsatisfied plow. A monk cow dung, sharp and pure, he brings to life a soul the color of olives, old already and calloused. He begins to live and begins to die from head to toe, raising the crust of his mother with the yoke. Now each new day finds him more root, less creature, hearing beneath his feet the call of the sepulcher. And like a root, he sinks slowly into the earth so that the earth might flood his brow with bread and peace. This starving child hurts me like an enormous thorn and his ashen existence shakes my soul of oak. So who will save this little boy smaller than a grain of oats? Whence will come the hammer to be executioner of this chain? Let it come from the hearts of day-laboring men, who before they are men are and have been children of the plow. This is the uh, opening scene from A Private View by Václav Havel. Um, Vanyek arrives at Stanyek's ground floor study in his house on the outskirts of Prague. The house is uh, surrounded by a garden. Vanyek, hello. Hello, Stanyek. Come in, come in, Vanyek, my dear fellow. Did you have trouble finding it? I forgot to mention the flowering magnolias. That's how you know my house. Superb, aren't they? Yes. Yes, I managed to double their blossoms in less than three years compared to the previous owner. Um, Have you magnolias uh, in your garden? No. Ah, well, you must have them. I am going to find two quality saplings, and I'll come and plant them for you personally. How about some brandy? I'd rather not, if you don't mind. Oh, come on, Vanyak, just a token one, huh? Good. Well, here we are, huh? Ah, Here's to our reunion. hmm? Cheers. You know, I I was afraid you weren't going to come. Why? Well, I mean, things got mixed up in an odd sort of way. Won't you sit down? Thanks. There, there, there. Yes, yes, that's more like Uh, peanuts. No, thanks. You know, you haven't changed much in all these years, you know. Neither have you. What? Me? Oh, come on. Getting on for 50? Going gray, aches and pains setting in, not as we used to be, eh? (laughs) huh? Yes, and the present times don't make one feel any better either. When did we see each other last, actually? I don't know. Wasn't it at your last opening night? Could be. Ah, seems like another age. We had a bit of an argument. Did we? Yeah. You took me to task for my illusions and my over-optimism. <laughs> Good Lord, how often since then I've had to admit to myself you were right. Of course, in those days, days I still believed that in spite of everything, some of the ideals of my youth could be salvaged, and I took you for an incorrigible pessimist. <laughs> but I am not a pessimist. Uh, you see, everything's turned around. Are you alone? Well, I mean, isn't there somebody, uh, you know... Uh, Following me? Not, not that I care. Well, After all, it was me that rang you up, right? I didn't notice anybody. 
By the way, suppose you want to shake them off one of these days. You know the best place to do it? No. Department store. You mingle with the crowd, then at the moment when they aren't looking, you sneak into the john and wait there for about two hours. They become convinced, you manage to slip out through a side entrance, and they give up. You must try it sometimes. Seems very peaceful here. Yes, yes, that's why we moved here. It was simply impossible to go on riding near that railway station. We've been here three years, you know. Of course, my greatest joy is the garden. I'll show you around later. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to boast a little. You do the gardening yourself? Yes, it's become my greatest private passion these days. Keep puttering about out there almost every day. Just now, <clears throat> I have been rejuvenating the apricots. Developed my own method. You see, based on a mixture of natural and artificial fertilizers, plus a special way of waxless grafting. You won't believe the results I get. I'll, I'll, I'll find some cuttings for you later on. Um, would you like a cigarette? Well, now, Ferdinand, tell me, how are you? All right. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Do they leave you alone, at least now and then? It depends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, how was it in there? Where? Well, can our sort bear it at all? You mean prison? Yeah. What else can one do? As far as I recall, you used to be bothered by hemorrhoids. Must have been terrible, considering the hygiene in there. They gave me suppositories. You ought to have them operated on, you know. It so happens that a friend of mine is our greatest hemorrhoid specialist. Works real miracles. I'll, I'll, I'll arrange it for you. Thanks. Yeah. You know, sometimes it all seems like a beautiful dream. All the exciting opening nights and lectures and meetings, huh? the endless discussions about literature and art, all the energy, the hopes, plans, activities, ideas, the wine bars crowded with friends, the wild boozings, the madcap affrays in the small hours, <laughs> jolly girls dancing attendance on us, <laughs> and the mountains of work we managed to get done, regardless. Ah, well, that's all over now. It'll never come back. Did they beat you? No. Do they beat people Sometimes, up in there? But not the politicals. Uh, I thought about you a great deal. Thank you. I bet in those days it never even occurred to you... What? Well, how it'll all end up. I bet not even you guessed that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's disgusting, Over. It's disgusting. The nation is governed by scum and the people. I mean, can this really be the same nation which not very long ago behaved so magnificently, all that horrible cringing and bowing and scraping, the selfishness, corruption, and, 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 and fear, wherever you turn? Good Lord, what have they made of us? I mean, can this really be us? Is this still ourselves at all? I don't believe 
Things are quite as black as all that. F forgive me, Ferdinand, but you don't happen to live in a normal environment. I mean, all you know are people who manage to resist this rot. You just keep on supporting and encouraging each other. I mean, you've no idea the sort of environment I've got to put up with. I mean, it makes you sick to your stomach. You mean in television? In television, in, 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 in the film studios. I mean, you name it. There was a piece by you on the box the other day. Yeah, well, you can't imagine what an ordeal that was. I mean, first, they kept blocking it for over a year, and then they started changing it around. I mean, change my whole opening and the entire closing sequence. You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe the trifles they find objectionable these days. I mean, nothing but sterility and intrigues, intrigues and sterility. I mean, how often I, I tell myself, wrap it up, chum. I mean, forget it. Go hide somewhere. Grow apricots. I know what you mean. I mean, the thing is, though, one can't help wondering whether one's got the right to this sort of escape. I mean, supposing even the little one might be able to accomplish today can, in spite of everything, help someone in some way, at least give him a bit of encouragement, to uplift him a little. Let me bring you a pair of slippers. Yeah, well, you, you, you can't be comfortable in those right. boots. No, no, no. Are, are you sure? It's really. Yeah. How about drugs? Did they, did they give you any? No. No uh, dubious injections? Some vitamin one? Uh, I bet there's some funny stuff in the food. Just bromine against sex. Uh -huh. but, but surely they tried to break you down somehow. Well, no, 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 no. If, if you'd rather not talk about it, it's, it's, it's all right. Well, in a way, that's the whole point of pre-trial interrogations, isn't it? To take one down a peg or two. Uh, and to make one talk. Mm -hmm. If they should haul me in for questioning, which sooner or later is bound to happen, you know what I'm going to do? What? Simply not answer any of their questions. I mean, refuse to talk to them at all. That's by far the best way. At least one can be quite sure one didn't say anything one ought not to have said. Mm. Anyway, one must have steel nerves to be able to bear it all, and in addition to keep on doing the things you do. Like what? Well, I mean, all the protests and petitions and letters, the whole fight for human rights, I... I mean, the things you and your friends keep on doing. Not doing so much. No, 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 no. Don't be too modest, Ferdinand. I follow everything that's going on. I know. If everybody did what, what you do, the situation would be quite different, and that's a fact. It's extremely important there should be at least a few people here who aren't afraid to speak the truth aloud, to defend others, and to call a spade a spade. I mean, what I'm going to say <clears throat> may sound a bit solemn, perhaps, but frankly, the way I see it, you and your friends have taken on an almost superhuman task to preserve and to carry the remains, the, the remnant of moral conscience through the present quagmire. The, the, the thread you're, you're spinning may be thin, but, but who knows? Perhaps the hope of a moral rebirth of the nation hangs on it. You exaggerate. Well, 
Well, that's how I see it, anyway. Well, surely our hope lies in all the decent people. Yes, but how many are there still around? Uh, Enough. Uh, are there? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I'll get you those slippers. Oh, please, don't bother. No, no, no. I insist. I feel uncomfortable just looking at your boots. I'm going to read two poems by Irina Ratushinskaya, a young Russian poet who was recently released from Soviet prison after eight years. I will live and survive and be asked how they slammed my head against a trestle, how I had to freeze at nights, how my hair started to turn gray. I will smile and will crack some joke and brush away the encroaching shadow. And I will render homage to the dry September that became my second birth. And I'll be asked, doesn't it hurt you to remember? Not being deceived by my outward flippancy, but the former names will detonate in my memory, magnificent as old canon. And I will tell of the best people in all the earth, the most tender, but also the most invincible, how they said farewell, how they went to be tortured, how they waited for lovers, how they waited for letters from their loved ones. And I'll be asked, what helped us to live when there were neither letters nor any news, only walls and the cold of the cell? and the blather of official lies and the sickening promises made in exchange for betrayal. And I will tell of the first beauty I saw in captivity, a frost-covered window, no doors nor walls nor cell bars nor the long-endured pain, only a blue radiance on a tiny pane of glass, a cast pattern, None more beautiful could be dreamt. The more clearly you looked, the more powerfully dawned those brigand forests, campfires, and birds. And how many times there was bitter cold weather, and how many windows sparkled after that one. But never was it repeated, that upheaval of rainbow ice. And anyway, what good would it be to me now? And what would the pretext be for that festival? Such a gift can only be received once, and once is probably enough. Let's be sad about our teaspoonful of love, my far-off friend, about the fact our prison terms are endless, that all the prophets are so stern. Oh, if only someone would bless us. My friend, let's be sad about how I came running in from March. You were waiting in the doorway and took me into that good house 
and the curtain of the station was so delayed that the hastily torn-off sprig had time to flower, and the narrow cupboard of a room floated into a shyness the color of wax. Let's be sad that we're still so profusely young. But we who've been born in an alien land, with our fate of wandering and pride, should we seek to borrow a native land? Like a bell fallen silent is the heart's spasm. How fathomlessly void is all ahead of us. But even the very longest sadness has a single smile at last. The next three poems are by Natalia Gorbanevskaya. Why talk of disaster or beauty when the oblivious body, happy, naked as the thieves upon the cross, wants to be deceived? Who is it weeps and cries over me like a crane crossing the snow line while the winter wind, the icy wind, chills the bright surface of a well? And this transcendental merging of passions, these clutching hands, this gasping breath, are like bones breaking softly on the cross, and at the stake, the crackle and the blaze. In my own 20th century, where there are more dead than graves to put them in, my miserable, forever unshared love among these Goya images is nervous, faint, absurd, as after the screaming of jets, the chump of the trump of Jericho. The French horn of the train sighs, weeps a little, an unattainable myth. Through the prison bars, a match gleam trickles. The whole world is eclipsed. The horn takes wing into the night it sweeps to flick through tracks like notes. Oh, how am I to reach that plain, rainy platform? Forsaken, sleepless, deserted, deserted without me, cloud tatters like letters drift down to your concrete and inscribing the puddles with full stops, with hooks and tails, their treble voices ring out after the departed train. Thank you. Testing. Vietnam, held without trial, most in re-education camps and most since 1975. Phung Nhoc An, Pham Yang Lam Ben, Yon Yu Bo, Yo Hu Chan, 
Towe Ka, Yung Hum Ka, Boy Kim Yin, Nguyen Hip Yuang, Nguyen Kang Yi, Chang Yui Han, Lung Wan, Wing Hua, Lam Te Hai, Chan Dao Wai, Lei Kim, Mei Dik Kai, Nguyen Yi Kang, Lei Bahi Lan, Nguyen Lan, Phan Yat Nam, Yung Yung Ya, Fang Yo, To Nao, Nguyen Ho Nya, Doang Wuk Sahi, Pham Yung Tam, Wing Si Te, Jen Yi Tan, Ha Nguyen Tan, Mai Ting Tan, Chan Sang Te, Wing Chi Ting, Pham Ting Tai, Wang Hai Tui, Pham Tai Tui, Lei Yang Ting, Kwa Yui Jar, Chu Yai Jai, Ngo Wang Cho, Wing Yang Chung, Wing Kim Tung, Dong Fu Tuai, Du Kai Tu, Pham Ying Kyu, Chan Tik Wei, Tan Yang, Lei Hai Yin, Investigation Cases, Yo Yong An, Nyuk Ban, Du Bon, John Yung Ka, John Ya He, Nguyen Yu, Dan Chon Hung, Pham Te Hung, Chan Bo Khan, Tut Duk Nyan, Chan Wee Fong, Wing Yang Tan. Angola, Horatio Martins Torado. Cameroon, investigation case, Ferdinand Chinji Kule. Ethiopia, Marta Kumsa. Kenya, Minawa Kenyati. Otiano Makanyango. David Atiando Othiombo. Gulamu Mwaviro. Wahomi Mutahi. Libya, Mustafa El Hashmi Bayou. Ahmed Muhammad El Fitori. Omar Belgasim Shalig El Kikli. Sa'ad El Sawi Mahmoud. Idris Juma El Mismari. Ali Muhammad Hadidan El Rebe. Muhammad Muhammad El Fege Sali. Idris Muhammad Ibn Tayeb. Juma Omar Bouklib. Kalef Sifa Kabush. Investigation cases. 
Abdesalam Muhammad Shehab, Fatih Nasib Muhammad, Muhammad Abdul Hamid Al Maliki, Ramadan Ali Al Farisi, Muhammad Omar Ben Saud, Abdullah Sali Al Awami, Redwan Bu Shishwa, Malawi, Jonathan Kuntamvila, Sandwell Kuali, Paul Akomenja, Morocco, Abdekader Chawi, Abraham Sirfati, Abd al Saham Yassin, Investigation Cases, Abdelatif Tribak, Ali Idris Kaitoni, Somalia, Abdullah Rage Tarawa, South Africa, Govan Mbeki, Tami Mkwanazi, Mofat Zunga, Band, Matata Tsudu, Fila Nkwamda, Mixolisi Jackson Fuzili, Uganda, Anthony Sekweyama, Chile, Ulysses Gomez Navarro, disappeared, Diana Aaron Sibilski, Manuel Rekabaran Rojas, Manuel Rivas Rachitov, Gonzalo Toro Garland, Fernando Ortiz Letelier, Cuba, Jorge Bragado, Eduardo Campo, Juan Miguel Espina, Amado Rodriguez Fernandez, Julian Portal Font, Gustavo Arcos Bergnes, Alberto Fibla Gonzalez, Ariel Hildago, Daniel Morales Leon, Alberto Jane Padron, Roberto Martin Perez Rodriguez, Guillermo Rivas Portas, Luis Arroya Ramos, Ernesto Diaz Rodriguez, Luis Rodriguez Rodriguez, Manuel Marquez Trio, Edmigio Lopez Castillo, Orlando Molina Contreras, Yoni Ibanez Gomez, Manuel Granados, Jacinto Muñez, Juan Alberto Valdez Terán, Ignacio Cuesta Valle, Jesus Castro Villalonga, Jose Yanis. Ecuador, investigation cases. Maria Restrepo, Hernando Calvo. El Salvador, Rene Thompson, Edgar Mauricio Vallejo, Cesar Najaro, Jaime Suarez Quemain, Amadeo Mendizabel. Guatemala disappeared. Abner Resinos Alfaro, Oscar Leonel Cordoba, Sonia Calderon de Martel, Rodrigo Ramirez Morales, Rolando Medina, Manuel Rene Polanco Salguera, Alaida Fopá de Tarzano, 
Angel Cal Claudio Calderon, Valentin Ferrat, Irma Flacaire, Nicholas Blake. Peru, investigation cases. Jaime Ayala Sulca, Sibila Arredondo. I have been asked to say a few words by way of introduction to the second act of this commemoration for all the writers in prison who have been imprisoned, banned, or exiled. I will then read three of my own poems. There are, of course, those who are imprisoned and those who have been in prison, like myself, and some of those on the platform. But I thought it would be helpful to remind you that there are also writers who confront difficulties here in the United States, and that something can be done to assist them as well. In my own case, I was not only jailed in South Africa, but for three years I was found deportable in the United States. It almost made me feel a little like a small radio or TV, something that was portable. Uh, eventually, eventually I was granted political asylum through the assistance of organizations like Penn and others that supported me in my resistance to deportation. And at the present time, as I'm sure some of you are aware, uh, we've just had the case of a, a young Chilean writer, Patricia Lara, who was deported uh, by the Immigration Service. And we have the curious case of my good friend and a very fine writer, Margaret Randall, who in spite of being born in America is now facing deportation. She too has been declared deportable. So there are issues both external and exter internal that I think we ought to be concerned about. I start with a poem I wrote for an Amnesty International event and it's about political prisoners everywhere but it draws on my own experience in South Africa where I saw people who had been given electric shocks uh, in the interrogation process uh, to the point where they were unable to control their limbs subsequently and simply would collapse in a heap. Uh, and the poem is about that. Sometimes they squat on the floor Sometimes they crouch in corners. Sometimes, like emptied sacks, they spread limply on the ground. And sometimes, in damp, dark patches, they sit like moldy vegetables. They are the political prisoners who nurse in their broken frames the frail flame 
of humanity, while others growl to snuff it out. It burns in these men and women, stubborn and unquenchable, like the red miles of the sunset. Uh, a rather longer lyric, uh, which combines the images of the desert, the drought in Africa, with the spiritual drought in my own country. Pray if you believe in prayer for those shipwrecked by love. Else pity them. The sunburst of your compassion may heal their broken stems, may restore their crushed tendrils. They live in a drought-shattered continent where the children are skeletal ghosts, their music the hoarse death low of emaciated expiring beasts. They cannot shutter their ears to the guttural rattles. Forgive us our anorexia, our anomy, our acidity. Forgive us our arid eyes, our unresonating ears, our vanished mouths. Forgive us and pity us. Permit us our oblivion of grief and the dry, abrupt lusts that spasm us. We have known the rocks and the shoals, the breakers and the talismanic spray. We have stood transfigured and effulgent. We have known the jagged axe and the taloned rocks. Pray if you believe in prayer. Or else, pity us, shipwrecked by love, for still it will not rain. And finally, a, a more personal poem. Uh, some time ago, I showed a documentary to a class about South Africa. And to my surprise, in the film was a still photograph taken on Robben Island, the prison of Cape Town, and taken at the time when I was there, breaking rocks with other prisoners like Nelson Mandela and Walter Sisulu and others. And I wrote this in response to the image, and I'll finish with this. In a long shot down the rectangular enclosure, stone-walled with barred windows, I find myself anonymous among the other faceless prisoners. I see myself again on my stone block, crouched over my rock pile and marvel. I see the men beside me, Peak and Alexander, Mandela and Sisulu, and Marvel. All the grim years and all the marvelous men who endure beyond 
the grim years. The will to freedom steadily grows. The force, the power, the strength steadily grows. First of my, the first of my two selections tonight by Edward Galliano. It is called A Scene in Jail. The scene is in Seville, and the year, the year is 1597. He was wounded and mutilated by the Turks. He was attacked by pirates and scourged by Moors. He was excommunicated by the priests. He was in prison in Algiers and in Castro del Rio. Now he is a prisoner in Seville. Seated on the floor beside the stone pallet, he dips his pen in the ink pot and wonders, eyes fixed on the candle flame, his good hand poised in the air, is it worthwhile to insist? King Philip's reply still hurts when, for a second time, he asked for a job in America. The reply, seek what befits you over here. If things have changed since then, they have changed for the worst. Before, he had at least the hope of a response. Since that time, the black-clad king, detached from the world, is not talking to anyone except his own phantoms within the walls of the Escorial. Miguel de Cervantes, alone in his cell, does not write to the king. He does not ask for any vacant office in the Indies. On a black sheet, he begins to relate the misadventures of a poet errant, one of those knights whose lance is on the rack, shield rusting, steed, skin and bone, hound run away. Melancholy sounds ring through the prison. He does not hear them. The second selection by the poet Iberto Padilla, entitled In Trying Times. They asked that man for his time so that he could link it to history. They asked him for his hands because for trying times nothing is better than a good pair of hands. They asked him for his eyes that once had tears so that he should see the bright side, the bright side of life especially. Because to see horror one startled eye is enough. They asked him for his lips, parched and split, to affirm, to belch up, with each affirmation a dream, the great dream. They asked for his legs, hard and knotted, his wandering legs, because in trying times, is there anything, anything better than a pair of legs for building or digging ditches? They asked him for the grove that fed him as a child, 
with its obedient tree. They asked him for his breast, heart, his shoulders. They told him that that was absolutely necessary. They explained to him later that all this gift would be useless unless he turned his tongue over to them because in trying times nothing is so useful in checking hatred or lies. And finally they begged him, please, to go take a walk because in trying times that is, without a doubt, the decisive test. The Game by Mila Aguilar What is it that you play chess for, dearest friend? You seem to move in with such relish upon my pawns. Your mouth waters at the prospect of correct maneuvers that drive so many helpless pieces at your command. Your eyes widen at the overview. The feeling of being way above, knowing all the little happenings below. Or so it seems to me who plays chess for the wrong reasons, that is to hammer down the haughty kings and queens. But chess is for the ruthless, I now realize, the power driven. To survive, one must not question rules and regulations. I am too soft-hearted for the game. I resign. Check your own mate. The next three poems are by Etelvina Strada. Our lives hang by a thread, always suspended from some pending obligation. Drum rolls are heard. It is a global circus. We, the aerialists, on a slack rope. Difficult art, staying balanced, hanging in the balance not even a safety net for this mortal somersault. Not a ledge, a cornice, a tenterhook, no reverie. In truth, although seemingly not much different, I'd rather be dangling from something. To settle accounts with life, I practice a futurology for the first century of a coming era. I renounce the dignity or onus of being human. I renounce ancestry and descent. The genealogical trees of all the kingdoms will be felled. I speak on the decline of the species in a necrological tongue. I feel strange, and all of a sudden, I want to howl like wolves. They have dispossessed us of the beginning and the end. Birth to death, data for the tombstone of the species, anniversaries unimportant because no one will commemorate them. This is Adam Michnik, writing from the Gdańsk prison in 1985. I'm not going to write about my own case. 
At the trial, I hope to bear the whole structure of the police provocation that was prepared bunglingly by Captain Piotrowski's chums in Gdańsk. I would like, however, to conclude with some personal remarks. For six months, I couldn't write a single word. My friends joked that I should be put back in prison. Jokingly, I conceded that they were right. And now it has happened. I was locked up, and I've written a political essay. It would be small-minded of me if I did not credit the man who inspired me, the general who ordered my arrest. I'm in such good company with Władysław Frashniuk and Bogdan Lis. Therefore, dear general, I owe you gratitude for your thoughtful watch over my steps and for providing proper direction for my meditations. I don't know what I would do without your suggestions and fatherly support. So much for thanks. What more can I say? We live in truly interesting times. We witness the barren twilight of the old world of totalitarian dictatorship. We, the people of solidarity, have been put to a difficult trial. But even if it becomes an ordeal by fire, fire cleans and purifies what it cannot consume. I'm not afraid of the general's fire. There's no greatness about them. Lies and force are their weapons. Their strength stems from their ability to release the darkest and basest instinct in ourselves. I am sure that we shall win. Sooner or later, but I think sooner, we shall leave the prisons and come out of the underground onto the bright square of freedom. But what will we be like then? I'm not afraid of what they will do to us, but of what they can make us into. For people who are outlaws for a long time may feed on their own traumas and emotions, which in turn strangle their reason and their ability to see reality. Even the best people can be demoralized by years of persecution and the shock of regaining their lost stature. I pray that we do not return like ghosts who hate the world, cannot understand it, and are unable to live in it. I pray that we do not change from prisoners into prison guards. We know that today we need efforts of many kinds. We need underground structures and we must strive for open action. We must act with consistency and above all, with patience. One cannot repeat this humble word too often. It is a declaration of an ambitious and persistent people, a declaration of unbending hope. We live in a strange state of suspension. Nothing has been sealed yet. The grand fate of the nation and the small fates of the people still hang in the balance. We are trapped by a humiliating feeling of helplessness and impotence. Is this right? In 1942, Czesław Miłosz wrote, in an historical moment when nothing depends on man, everything depends on him. This paradoxical truth is revealed today with particular force. Two poems by a Turkish poet, Nazim Hikmet. The strangest creature on earth. You are like a scorpion, brother. You live in cowardly darkness like a scorpion. You are like a sparrow, brother, always in a sparrow's flutter. 
You're like a clam, brother, closed like a clam, content. And you're frightening, brother, like the mouth of an extinct volcano. Not one, not five. Alas, you number millions. You're like a sheep, brother, when the drover who wears your pelt raises his stick, you rush to join the flock and run almost proudly to the slaughterhouse. I mean, you are the strangest creature on earth, even stranger than the fish that can't see the ocean for the water. And the oppression in this world is because of you, brother. If we are starved, wasted, only skin and bones, squeezed dry like grapes to yield up our wine. I cannot say that the fault is entirely yours. But, brother, for the most part. Angina pectoris. If half my heart is here, doctor, the other half is in China with the army flowing toward the Yellow River. And every morning, doctor, every morning at dawn, my heart is shot in Greece. And every night, doctor, when the prisoners are asleep and the infirmary is deserted, my heart goes away, doctor, goes away to a small, frame house in Istanbul. And for ten years now, doctor, I've had nothing in my hands to offer my poor people, nothing but an apple, one red apple, my heart. I look at the night through the bars, and despite the weight of these walls on my chest, my heart still beats with the farthest constellations. And that, doctor, that is the cause, not nicotine, prison, or hardening arteries, the cause of my angina pectoris. The next two poems are by a Greek poet, Yanis Ritsos, but no Greek or Turk would ever share the same microphone, so. <laughs> In the ruins of an ancient temple, the museum guard was smoking in front of the sheepfold. The sheep were grazing among the marble ruins. Farther down, the women were washing in the river. You could hear the beat of the hammer in the blacksmith's shop. The shepherd whistled. The sheep ran to him as though the marble ruins were running. The water's thick nape shone with coolness behind the oleanders. A woman spread her washed laundry on the shrubs and the statues. She spread her husband's underpants on Hera's shoulders. Foreign, peaceful, silent intimacy, years 
on years. Down on the shore, the fishermen passed by with broad baskets full of fish on their heads, as though they were carrying long and narrow flashes of light, gold, rose, and violet, the same as that procession bearing the long, richly embroidered veil of the goddess that we cut up the other day to arrange as curtains and tablecloths in our emptied houses. Miniature. The woman stood up in front of the table. Her sad hands begin to cut thin slices of lemon for tea, like yellow wheels for a very small carriage made for a child's fairy tale. The young officer sitting opposite is buried in the old armchair. He doesn't look at her. He lights his cigarette. His hand holding the match trembles, throwing light on his tender chin and the teacup's handle. The clock holds its heartbeat for a moment. Something has been postponed. The moment has gone. It's too late now. Let's drink our tea. Is it possible then for death to come in that kind of carriage? To pass by and go away? And only this carriage to remain with its little yellow wheels of lemon parked for so many years on a side street with unlit lamps. And then a small song, a little mist, and then nothing. One day, as I was just going into the synagogue, I saw sitting on a bench near the door, Moshe the Beadle. He told his story and that of his companions. The train full of deportees had crossed the Hungarian frontier and on Polish territory had been taken in charge by the Gestapo. There it had stopped. The Jews had to get out and climb into lorries. The lorries drove toward a forest. The Jews were made to get out. They were made to dig huge graves. And when they had finished their work, the Gestapo began theirs. Without passion, without haste, they slaughtered their prisoners. Each one had to go up to the hole and present his neck. Babies were thrown into the air and the machine gunners used them as targets. This was in the forest of Galicia near Kolomaye. How had Moshe the beetle escaped? Miraculously, he was wounded in the leg and taken for dead. Through long days and nights, he went from one Jewish house to another, telling the story of Malka, the young girl who had taken three days to die. 
and of Tobias the tailor who had begged to be killed before his sons were. Moshe had changed. There was no longer any joy in his eyes. He no longer sang. He no longer talked to me of God or of the Kabbalah, but only of what he had seen. People refused not only to believe his stories, but even to listen to them. He's just trying to make us pity him. What an imagination he has, they said. Or even, poor fellow, he's gone mad. And as for Moshe, he wept. Jews, listen to me. It's all I ask of you. I don't want money or pity. Only listen to me. He would cry between prayers at dusk. I did not believe him myself. I would often sit with him in the evening after the service, listening to his stories and trying my hardest to understand his grief. I felt only pity for him. They take me for a madman, he would whisper, and tears like drops of wax flowed from his eyes. Once I asked him this question. Why are you so anxious that people should believe what you say? In your place, I shouldn't care whether they believe me or not. He closed his eyes as though to escape time. You don't understand, he said in despair. You can't understand. I have been saved miraculously. I managed to get back here. Where did I get the strength from? I wanted to come back to Syed to tell you the story of my death so that you could prepare yourselves while there was still time to live. I don't attach any importance to my life anymore. I'm alone. No, I wanted to come back and to warn you and see how it is. Nobody will listen to me. Primo Levi, Moments of Reprieve. A notice was affixed to the door of the barracks, and everyone jostled to read it. It was written in German-Polish, and a French prisoner caught between the crowd and the wooden wall laboriously tried to translate and comment on it. The notice said that, as a special exception, all prisoners were to be allowed to write to their relatives under conditions that were minutely spelled out in true German fashion. You could write only on forms that each barracks chief would distribute, one to a prisoner. The only permissible language was German, and the only approved addresses were those who lived in Germany or in the occupied territories or in allied countries like Italy. You were not allowed to ask for food packages to be sent, but it was all right to thank people for any packages you might possibly receive. At this point, the Frenchman exclaimed forcefully, The bastards! and broke off. The din and pushing and shoving got worse, and there was a confused exchange of opinions in several languages. Who had ever officially received a package, or even only a letter, 
Besides, who knew our address? If KZ Auschwitz could be considered an address. And to whom could we write since all our relatives were like us, imprisoned in some camp or dead or hiding here and there in every corner of Europe in terror of suffering the same fate as ours? Obviously, it was a trick. The thank you letters with the Auschwitz postal mark would be shown to the Red Cross delegation. Or who knows what other neutral authority to prove that, after all, the Jews in Auschwitz were not treated all that badly, seeing as how they received packages from home. A filthy lie. Three opinions were formed. Not to write at all, to write without thanking anyone, to write and thank. The partisans of this last course of action, few to be sure, maintained that the theory of the Red Cross was likely but not certain, and there still existed a probability, however slight, that the letters would reach their destinations and the thanks would be interpreted as a suggestion to send packages. I decide to write without thanking, addressing the letter to Christian friends who somehow would find my family. I borrowed a pencil stub, obtained the form, and set to work. I first wrote a draft on a scrap of cement wrapper which I wore illegally on my chest to protect myself from the wind. Then I began to copy the text onto the form, but I felt ill at ease. For the first time since my capture, I felt in communication and communion, albeit only theoretically, with my family, and so I would have liked solitude. But solitude in a camp is more precious and rare than bread. I had the irksome impression that someone was watching me. I turned around. It was my new bunkmate. He quietly watched me write with the innocent but provocative fixity of children who feel no shame about staring. He had arrived a few weeks earlier with a trainload of Hungarians and Slovaks. He was very young, slim, and dark. I knew nothing about him, not even his name, because he was in a different squad and got into the bunk to sleep only at curfew. There was little feeling of camaraderie among us. It was confined to compatriots, and even toward them, it was weakened by the minimal life conditions. It was actually zero, indeed negative, with regard to newcomers. And this, in this and many other respects, we had greatly retrogressed and become hardened. And in the new fellow prisoner, we tended to see an alien, an oafish, cumbersome barbarian who took up space, time, and bread, who did not know the unspoken but on ironclad rules of coexistence and survival and who moreover complained and for the wrong reasons in an irritating and ridiculous manner because just a few days back he was still at home or at least outside the barbed wire. The new arrival has only one virtue. He brings recent news from the world because he's read the newspapers and listened to the radio, perhaps even the allied radio broadcasts. But if the news he brings is bad, for example, that the war will not end in two weeks, then he is nothing but a nuisance to be shunned or derided for his ignorance or subjected to cruel jokes. That newcomer behind me, however, although he was spying me, aroused in me a vague feeling of compassion. He seemed defenseless and disoriented, in need of support, like a child, certainly had not grasped the importance of the choice to be made, whether to write and what to write, and he was neither tense nor suspicious. I turned my back to him to prevent him from seeing my sheet of paper and went on with my work, which wasn't easy. It was a matter of weighing each word 
so that it would convey the maximum of, in, of information to the improbable recipient and at the same time would not appear suspect to the probable censor. Having to write in German added to the difficulty. I had gotten my German in the camp and without my realizing it, it reproduced the drab, vulgar barracks jargon. I didn't know many terms, exactly those needed to express feelings. I felt inept, as if I had to carve the letter in stone. My bunkmate patiently waited until I was finished, then he said something in a language I didn't understand. I asked him in German what he wanted, and he showed me his form, which was blank, and pointed to mine, which was covered with writing. In short, he was asking me to write for him. He must have understood that I was Italian, and to better clarify his request, he delivered a muddled speech in slapdash language that was in fact more Spanish than Italian. Not only did he not know how to write in German, he didn't know how to write at all. He was a gypsy, and had been born in Spain, and had wandered about in Germany, Austria, and the Balkans, only to end up in the Nazis' dragnets in Hungary. He introduced himself formally, Grigo. His name was Grigo. He was 19, and he begged me to write his fiancée. He would pay me. With what? A gift, he answered without specifying. I asked him for bread. Half a ration seemed to me a fair price. Today I'm a little ashamed of this request of mine, but I must remind the reader and myself that our switch etiquette was different from ours. And besides, Grigo, having arrived a short while before, was less hungry than I. And he did accept. I reached out for his form, but he pulled it away and instead handed me another scrap of paper. It was an important letter, better to make a draft. He began to dictate the girl's address. He must have caught a blink of curiosity or perhaps envy in my eyes because he pulled a photograph from his shirt and showed it to me with pride. She was almost a child with laughing eyes, a little white kitten by her side. My respect for the gypsy increased. It was not easy to enter the camp with a hidden photograph. Almost as though he felt a justification was needed, Grigo specified that she had not been picked by him, but by his father. She was an official fiancée, not a girl abducted unceremoniously. The letter which he dictated to me was a complicated love letter full of domestic details. It contained questions, the sense of which escaped me, and information about the camp which I advised Grigo to admit because it was too compromising. On one point, Grigo insisted. He wanted to announce to the girl that he was going to send her a muñeca. A muñeca? Yes, a doll. Grigo explained as best he could. I found this embarrassing for two reasons, because I did not know how to say doll in German, and because I could not imagine for what reason, in what way he wanted to or had to commit himself to this insane and dangerous undertaking. I felt it my duty to explain all this to him. I had more experience than he, and it seemed to me that my role as scribe imposed certain obligations. Grigo bestowed on me a disarming smile, a newcomer's smile, but did not explain much. I don't know whether because of his inability or because of the linguistic conflict or without deliberate intention, but he told me that he had absolutely must send the doll, that finding it was no problem. He would fabricate it on the spot right there, and he showed me a pretty little pocket knife. No, this Grigo definitely knew his way around. Once again, I was forced to admire him. He must have been very ingenious when he entered the camp. 
when they take away everything you have on, even your handkerchief and hair. Perhaps he didn't realize it, but a knife like his was worth at least five rations of bread. He asked me to tell him if there was a tree somewhere from which he could cut a branch, because it was better if the daw was made de madera viva, of live wood. Again I tried to dissuade him, descending to his level. There were no trees, and besides, sending the girl a doll made of Auschwitz wood, wasn't it like attracting her here? But Grigo lifted his eyebrows with a mysterious air, touched his nose with his index finger, and said that if anything, it was exactly the contrary. The doll would pull him out. The girl knew what to do. When the letter was finished, Grigo pulled out a ration of bread and handed it to me together with the knife. It was the custom, indeed the unwritten law, that in all payments based on bread, one of the contracting parties must cut the bread and the other choose, because in this way the person who cuts is induced to make the portions as equal as possible. I was surprised that Grigo already knew the rule, but then I thought that perhaps it applied also outside the camp in the to-me-unknown world from which he came. I cut, and he praised me gallantly. That both half-rations were the same was to his disadvantage, but I had cut well, no doubt about that. He thanked me, and I never saw him again. Needless to say, none of the letters we wrote that day ever reached its destination. These are two poems by the Nicaraguan poet Pablo Antonio Cuadra. The first one, Horses in the Lake. The horses go down at dawn. They enter the golden lake and move on, wave against wave of arched necks and manes into the dazzling light. Naked boys bathe their haunches and they raise their antique figures drunk with light. They listen, ears attentive, to the delicate bugle of morning and see the vast battlefield. Then they dream. A remote boldness breaks through, soaring back to the heroic days when swords return the sun's thrusts, white stallions, squadrons of silver, and distant cries of birds and wind. But they return. Time is the whip. With a lash they file toward land, heads bowed and yoked to the wagon. The dream remains behind. The wind's asleep. The departure. Said Cypher's mother, leave the waters. Cypher sounded a conch and laughing exclaimed, the lake is adventure. You prefer, she said, the risk to safety. I prefer the strange to the known. Cypher hoisted a jib, and just the sail's crazy dove-like sound filled him with joy. Mother, your language speaks of the solid roof, home, woman. They say the islands are women's tombs. Men are ships. 
Men are risks, she cried. Cypher smiled, putting the harp in the prow and twisting his body, he pulled at the chain and raised the anchor. Once more a child left his mother's womb for the world. And here's another Nicaraguan poet, Ernesto Cardenal, the filibusters. They were scoundrels, thieves, gamblers, gunslingers. There were also honest men and gentlemen and brave men, fellows enlisting out of necessity and illusions. Some fellows out of work one morning would be on a pier and an agent of Walker would come up with free passage to Nicaragua toward where there was no passage back. Or they came for 160 acres of land in Central America to sell it and 25 bucks a month. And they fought for nothing a month and six square feet of earth. Or they'd come in search of glory, a name forever written down in the pages of history, and their names were forgotten in barracks with boards taken out to make their coffins and the drunken sergeant, pigs, crap, or those in hospitals consisting of mango, coconut, and almond groves where they suffered from delirium with howler monkeys and magpies all around getting chills from the wind off the lake. And the luckiest ones were those who died in battles or in ambushes at night along strange roads like a dream or by accident or sudden death. And always loaded with more filibusters and more filibusters bound for San Juan del Sur and for San Juan del Norte, the transit company would come like Karen's boat. Vanderbilt and Morgan knew where they were going. Almost all died. And down in Nicaragua, they stole money from the dead. This poem is called Jose Dolores Estrada to all exiled Nicaraguans. He fought against the Spanish governor in the streets of Zalteva in the unsuccessful rebellion of April 1812. But the glory wasn't his. He was a boy then, and other rebels were the leaders. He later defeated the Yankees at San Jacinto Ranch. He was a general then, but the glory wasn't just his. Soldiers and peasants fought too. Now, an old man in exile for opposing the re-election re of the president, his close friend, he writes to friends from Costa Rica, I am clearing a little patch here to see if I can grow some tobacco plants. And that was his great glory because it was his hardest battle and the one in which he fought alone, with no generals or soldiers or trumpets or victory.
this is a short scene from uh, uh, Wally Shoyinka's translation of the Bacchae of uh, Euripides. Pentheus interrogates Dionysus. These sacred practices of your god, this worship, the rites of great devotion, do they hold at night or in the day? Poor Pentheus, how you must suffer, tying so rigidly the hour of the day and night with sin or virtue. We hold our rites mostly at night, but only because it is cooler. And the lamps lend atmosphere and feeling to the heart in worship. The lighting of a lamp is in itself a votive act. Oil is an offering. A woman bears a lamp, and the ring of light that falls around her frame is magic, holy, a secretive and tender kind of grace. Think of a dark mountain pierced by myriads of tiny flames, then see the human mind as that dark mountain whose caves are filled with self-inflicted fears. Dionysus is the flame that puts such fears to flight, a flame that must be gently lit or else consume you. And I say night hours are dangerous, lascivious hours, lechery. You'll find debauchery in daylight, too. Uh, you wrestle well with words. You will regret your ill-timed cleverness. And you, your stupid blasphemies. Enough! You, bring me the shears. Shears, what terrible fate am I to undergo? First, we shall rid you of your girlish curls. My hair is holy. My curls belong to God. Next, you will surrender the wand. You will have to take it. It belongs to Dionysus. You think I fear a common conjurer's wand? And now we will place you under guard and confine you to the palace. Dionysus will set me free whenever I request it. Yes, when you get your followers round you and summon his presence. He sees, he is here. This minute he knows what is being done to me. Well, where is he then? Is he always invisible? Why doesn't he show himself? He does. But you being crass and insensitive, you can see nothing. You insult me. You must be raving. He insults your king, he insults Thebes. Load him with chains, the man is insane. I am sane, but you are not. I warn you, set me free. Chain him, I say. Weight him down with chains. I'll show you who has the power here. You do not know what life is. You do not know what you do. You do not know the limits of your power. You will not be forgiven. What are you all waiting for? Chain him, I say. I give you sober warning, Pentheus. Place no chains on me. I am Pentheus, son of Aikion. You are nothing. Pentheus, the name befits a doomed man. Oh, take him away. Get him out of my sight. He talks and talks. Lock him up somewhere near, in the stables. Yes, leave him in the stables. Let him thrash in the hay and light up his darkness with the flame of Dionysus. Dance in there. And the creatures you brought with you, your accomplices in subversion, I shall have them sold to slavery. They will work at the looms, will carry water for the troops. Day and night, that will silence their drums. I leave you now. I go. Not to suffer, for that cannot be. 
But Dionysus, whose godhead you deny, will call you to account. When you set chains on me, you manacle the god. This is from a book, This Earth of Mankind, by Pramodja Anantatur. This is an excerpt from a letter from a young Dutch girl to this Javanese writer. Minke, my friend, all that these people have done for the Javanese is now, Papa says at the close of this 19th century, out of date. Now, today, according to Papa, it is the natives themselves that must do something. So when we talked about Dr. Hagrange that day, it was no coincidence. That particular scholar holds an honored place in the thinking of our family. We praise association at which you laughed that day. So please understand, my friend, why Papa has so much interest in you. Indeed, Papa and the two of us too had never met a Javanese like you. Your attitude, he said, was totally European, free of the mold of Javanese slavery born of the era of defeat from the time the Europeans set foot on this, the land of your birth. Already two years ago, Papa had ordered us to study music as produced by your people. You have studied to be able to listen to gamelan for a long time now, he said to us, and perhaps you can already enjoy it. Listen to how all the tones wait upon the sound of the gong. That is how it is in Javanese music, but that is not how it is in real life, because this pathetic people has still not found their gong, a leader, a thinker, who can come forth with words of resolution. Menke, my friend, where is the possibility of the gong outside Gamelan in real life? Will you perhaps be the one? The great gong? May we pray for you. Listen again to the Gamelan, said Papa once more. So it has been for centuries, and the gong in the life of the Javanese has still not yet arrived. The Gamelan sings of a people's longing for a messiah. Ah, just longing after him not seeking him out, not giving birth to him. The gamelan translates the life of the Javanese, a people who are unwilling to seek, to search, who just circle around repeating as in prayers and mantras, suppressing, killing thought, carrying people into a dispirited universe which leads them astray where there is no character. Those are the views of the Europeans, my friend. No Javanese, not one would have such views as these. Papa also says, if within the next 20 years things remain like this without change, that will be the sign that this, this people will never obtain their Messiah. My friend, what will be the face of your so saddening a people 20 years from now? One day in the future, we will go home to the Netherlands. I will go into politics, Minky. It's a pity, though, that the Netherlands still doesn't allow a woman to sit in the lower house. 
I have a dream, my friend, that one day, when it is no longer as it is now, and I can become an honorable member of the lower house, I will speak much about your country and your people. And when I return to Java, I will, first of all, listen once more again to your gamelan, a gamelan whose beautiful unity of sound has no equal on earth. If its theme is just the same, a longing without effort, it means no Messiah has yet arrived or has yet been born. It also means you have not yet emerged as a gong, or indeed no Javanese ever will, and your people will drown forever in the overflow of repeated tones and vicious circles. If change has taken place, I will seek you out and hold out my hand in respect. From your sincere and well-wishing friend, Miriam Delacroix. This, on April 2nd, 1979, Nguyen Chi Tien, a North Vietnamese writer who had spent 20 years in prison camps, went into the British Embassy in Hanoi and handed a manuscript and a letter to a British diplomat. He was immediately arrested by the Vietnamese guards and he has been in prison ever since. Here is part of the letter that accompanied Tien's poems. Sir, it is on behalf of the millions of innocent victims of dictatorship already fallen or dying a slow and painful death in communist prisons that I beg you to have these poems published in your free country. They are the fruit of my 20 years of work. Most of them were created during my years in detention. I think it's up to us, the victims, rather than anyone else to show to the world the incredible sufferings of our people, oppressed and tortured at pleasure. Please accept, sir, the expression of my deep gratitude as well as that of my unfortunate compatriots. The poems that follow are from the section of Flowers from Hell called Sundry Notes. Feelings turn poems by themselves inside a soul with magic dreams. Puff once or twice at your cheap cigarette and rhymes start humming there. Flowers from hell. Real blood has watered them. Blood mixed with animal sweat, with parting tears. Blooming in prison, sickly, starved and cold. They reek of damp and mold, look gray as mud. Real life is not unlike a hospital. They ply you with such bitter drugs, yet cannot cure you of two ills. For forever you have caught desire and hope. And finally, a brief, untitled poem. My poetry is not mere poetry, no, but it's the sound of sobbing from a life, the din of doors in a dark jail, the wheeze of two poor wasted lungs, the thud of earth tossed down to bury dreams, the clank of hose that dig up memories, the clash of teeth all chattering from the cold, the cry of hunger from a stomach wrenching wild, the throb-throb of a heart that cries forlorn, 
the helpless voice before so many wrecks. All sounds of life hath lived, of death hath died. No poetry, no. This is The First Circle by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Without knowing a tenth of Moscow, Nadia did know the dismal geography of Moscow's prisons. Since Gleb had once again returned from a distant camp to Moscow, and not to a camp this time, but to some amazing sort of institution, a special prison where the food was excellent and where they were occupied with scientific matters, Nadia had again begun to see her husband from time to time. However, wives were not supposed to know where their husbands were being kept, so for their rare visits, the Zeks were brought to various Moscow prisons. The ordinary Zeks saw their visitors through two gratings. A guard walked in the aisle between the gratings, as if he were in a cage. Zeks with a higher status, the Sharashka Zeks, met their visitors across a large table, underneath which a solid panel prevented them from touching feet or signaling to each other. At the end of the table, the guard sat like a vigilant statue, listening to the conversation. But the most oppressive thing at Butriskaya was that the husband seemed to appear from the depths of the prison, emerge for half an hour out of the thick, dank walls, smile in ghostly fashion, assure their wives that they were living well, that they did not need anything, and then return into the walls. Though she had cried while she was waiting, Nadia had a holiday feeling when at last she went in. When she appeared in the doorway, Nerjin had already risen to meet her and he was smiling. His smile lasted only a moment, but she felt a sudden happiness. He remained just as close. He had not changed toward her. The bull-necked guard in a soft gray suit looking like a retired gangster approached the small table. His presence divided the narrow room, preventing them from touching. Oh, come on, let me at least take her by the hand, Nyarshin said angrily. It's against the rules, the guard answered, letting his heavy jaw open just enough for the words to come through. Nadja smiled vacantly and signaled her husband not to argue. She sat in the armchair he had arranged for her. In places, the fiber was sticking out of its leather upholstery. Several generations of interrogators had sat in that armchair, sent hundreds of people to their graves, and soon followed themselves. Well, happy birthday. Thank you. Such a coincidence that it should be today. <laughs> the stars. They were already accustomed to speaking to each other. Nadia tried to disregard the oppressive presence of the guard watching them. Nerjin tried to sit in such a way that the rickety stool did not pinch him. The little table that had stood in front of generations of prisoners under interrogation now stood between husband and wife. Although it was not at all hot in the room, but rather chilly, Nadia unbuttoned her coat collar and opened it, for she wanted to show her husband not only her new fur coat, about which she had said nothing, but also her new blouse. She had hoped that the orange blouse would brighten her face. 
She was afraid she might look sallow in this dim light. With one embracing glance, Nyerjin took in his wife, her face, her throat, and the opening at her bosom. Nadja stirred under this look, the most important event in the visit, and seemed to rise to meet him. You have a new blouse. Show me some more. And my fur coat? But what about the fur coat? It's new. Oh, so it is, Gleb said finally. The fur coat is new. He looked at the black curls, not even knowing that it was a caracal or whether it was real or artificial, being the last man on earth able to distinguish a 500-ruble coat from a 5,000-ruble one. Now she threw back the coat. He saw her neck finely molded like a young girl's, as it had always been, and the narrow shoulders he had loved to crush when he embraced her, and beneath the folds of her blouse, the breasts which had lost their firmness in the course of the years. His brief, reproachful thought that she was getting new clothes, making new acquaintances, was replaced by the awareness that the sides of the gray prison van had crushed her life too. Yerjin made an effort to touch his wife's knees with his own, but the bar under the table prevented even this contact. The table rocked, resting on his elbows and leaning nearer to his wife. Yerjin said with disappointment, that's how it is, obstacles everywhere. Are you mine? Mine? His look asked. I'm the one you loved. I'm no worse, believe me, her shining gray eyes told him. And your graduate work, what problems are you having with it? Tell me, you aren't a graduate student any longer? No. Then you've defended your dissertation? No. Oh, how can that be? Nadia raised her hands in a gesture of helplessness. She would have had to explain that in the university there were hardly any unclassified subjects left. A work on a classified subject meant a new, still more detailed security questionnaire about her husband, her husband's relatives, and the relatives of their relatives. If one were to say my husband was sentenced under Section 58, they would refuse not only to let her work at the university, but also to defend her dissertation. If she were to lie and say my husband was missing in action, then she would still have to give his family name, and all they had to do was check it out in the MVD card file and she would be sentenced for perjury. There was still a third possibility, but under Nerjin's watchful stare, Nadia avoided mentioning it. Oh, yes. You know, the girls scold me for amusing myself with music, but I tell them it's better to be busy with something than with someone. Yerjin looked at his wife gratefully. Then he asked with concern, just a minute, ab about the dissertation, Nadja lowered her eyes. I wanted to say, no, don't take it to heart, nicht wahr. You once insisted that we should get a divorce. She said it very quietly. That was the third possibility, the one which would open up her life again. Of course, she would not write divorced because the security questionnaire would still require the family name of her former husband and his present address and the names of his relatives and even their birth dates, occupations, and addresses. Instead, she would write unmarried. Yes, there had been a time when he had insisted, but right now he trembled. Only at that moment did he notice that the wedding ring she had always worn was not on her finger. Yes, of course, he agreed with great determination. Then you would not be against it if I have to do it? 
With a great effort, she looked up at him. Her eyes widened. The fine gray rainbows in them were alight with a plea for forgiveness and understanding. It would not be real, she added with her breath alone, without voice. Oh, good girl, you, you should have done it long ago. Nergin agreed in a voice of firm conviction, though he felt neither conviction nor firmness, and he put off until after the visit all interpretation of what had happened. Maybe I won't have to, she said in a supplicating voice, pulling her coat over her shoulders again. At that moment, she looked tired, worn out. I just wanted, in case... So we agree. Maybe I won't have to. No, no, why not? You're right. Good girl. Nyajin repeated without feeling, his thoughts already shifting to the main thing he had prepared to say to her. It's important, my darling, that you should not hope too much for the end of my prison term. Nyajin had already prepared for a second prison term followed by perpetual imprisonment. It had happened to many of his comrades. He could not mention it in letters and he had to speak about it now. An expression of fear appeared on Nadja's face. A prison term is a conditional thing, he explained, speaking hard and fast, accenting his words in the wrong places so the guard could not follow what he said. It can spiral on forever. History is full of examples, and even if it should miraculously end, don't imagine you and I will return to our city, to our old way of life. You must understand one thing and never forget it. They don't sell tickets to the past. For instance, what I regret most of all is that I'm not a shoemaker. How useful that skill would be in some North Siberian village, in Krasnoyarsk, in the lower reaches of the Angara. It's the only sort of life to prepare for. Who needs Euler's mathematical formulas there? As Nyerzhin spoke, the fear on Nadja's face turned to horror. No, no, she cried out. Don't say that, darling. She'd already forgotten about the guard who was no... She was no longer ashamed to show her feelings. Don't take my hopes away. I don't want to believe it. It simply can't be. Or did you think I would really leave you? Her upper lip trembled, her face was distorted, her eyes expressed loyalty. Only loyalty. I believe you. I believe you, Nadyushenka, he said in a changed voice. I understood it that way. She fell silent and sank back in the chair. In the open door of the room stood the guard, vigilantly watching. It's over, he said in the doorway. Already, Nadia asked in surprise. Yerjin frowned, trying to remember the most important things still on the list that he had memorized before the visit. Yes, don't be surprised if they send me away from here, far away, and if my letters stop entirely. Can they do that? Where, Nadia cried out. Only God knows, he said, shrugging his shoulders meanfully. Don't tell me you've started believing in God. <laughs> Pascal, Newton, Einstein. You were told not to name any names, the guard barked. <laughs> Break it up. Husband and wife rose together, and now, when there was no longer any risk of having the visit cut short, Nyerjin embraced Nadja across the small table, kissed her on the cheek, and clung to the soft lips that he had completely forgotten. He had no hope of being in Moscow a year later to kiss her again. His voice trembled with tenderness. In everything, do what is best for you. And I... He did not finish. They looked into each other's eyes. What is this? The guard bellowed and dragged Nyajin back by the shoulder. I'm canceling your visit. 
Nyajin tore himself away. Go ahead and cancel it and the hell with you, Nyajin muttered under his breath. Nadia backed toward the door, and with the fingers of her ringless hand, she waved goodbye to her husband. Then she disappeared through the door. It is short. Kim Chi Ha from Cry of the People and Other Poems, 1974, The Yellow Dust Road. Am I in the right place? Well. Following the vivid blood, blood on the yellow road, I am going, Father, where you died. Now it's pitch dark. Only the sun scorches. Hands are barbed wired. The hot sun burns sweat and tears and rice paddies under the bayonets through the summer heat. I am going, Father, where you died. Where you died wrapped in a rice sack when the trouts were jumping along the Puju brookside, when the blaze rose from the Opu hill every night, on that day when the sun shone brightly on the yellow land. The muddy land, resilient as the gorses that grow intrepidly green. Shall we cry out the call of that day? Shall we sing the song of that day? In small Wadang village, embraced among the sparse bamboo bushes, blood surges up, in every well, every ten years, born in this barren colony, slain under the bayonets, my father. How could the dew in the bamboo buds that spring forget, ever forget, the crystal brightness of May? It was a long and cruel summer, when even the children were starving. That sultry summer of blatant tyranny that knew not of the heavens or of the yellow road, eternally our motherland, our hope. Following the muddy beach where the sun burns the old wooden boats to dust, again through the rice paddies and over the bleached whitish furrows, it's been ten years since the call of that day that thundered against the ever blue and high firmament. The flesh, the breath, tightened by barbed wire. I can hear your voice. I am going now, Father where you died, when the trouts were jumping along the Puju brookside, where you died, wrapped in a rice sack, where you died. Exile and the Pan American Center. Thanks you for coming, and thanks all of you.